Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss, and this week's episode is with the charming and eloquent and delightful writer-journalist Douglas Murray. I fell in love with Douglas's writing from his books, uh, the first book I read, The Madness of Crowds, and then War on the West more recently. And uh, the writing in there touched topics that are, are near and dear to both of us, Uh, And then I got to know him personally and found him even more delightful than his writing and then discovered a different facet of Douglas Murray. Uh, Recently, he uh, writes a segment each week for free press on poetry, on poetry that he is committed to memory and the importance of that and just discusses some of the greatest poets around. And and I loved listening to them and, 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 of course, share his interest in at least a few of the poets. And I asked him, actually to bookend this episode. We began this episode and ended it with poetry, which is why I call this episode From Poetry to Free Speech. We began with the sublime poetry and then moved to the ridiculousness of the modern world, the attacks on free speech, free speech, rationality, classical liberalism, as you might call it. And and Douglas and I come from different ends of the political spectrum, but we share a concern about the attacks on, on literally the Enlightenment And we talked about all the things you probably shouldn't talk about when you go home for Thanksgiving, from gender to race to identity, feminism, postmodernism, and uh, many other isms, and uh, and the events that are going on in the world that have us both concerned about, about not just free speech, but democracy in general. So I hope you will be as enthralled listening to this as I was talking to Douglas Murray. And you can watch it. Uh, ad-free if you subscribe to our Critical Mass Substack site and those subscription fees go to support the Origins Project Foundation, the nonprofit foundation that produces this podcast and other other, uh, activities that are where we try and bring science and culture together. Or you can watch it uh, for free on YouTube or listen to it on any podcast listening site. Regardless of how you watch it or listen to it, I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I I did, and I hope you're, you're, you'll be enth- as enthralled and captivated by Douglas Murray as I, I continue to be. With no further ado, Douglas Murray. Well, uh, Douglas, thank you so much for, for coming on. I've wanted to have you on for so long, and all that's happened since I first planned to get you on is there's I've been reading more and more of your stuff and enjoying it more and more so we'll go longer and longer <laughs> so well thank you yeah. it's, it's great it's a great pleasure I'm it's so a, glad we could finally make this work yeah me too me too it's great and and uh and it's and this actually this reminds me of the probably you don't remember the tv show Green Acres uh which was a show about a, a guy from New York who moved to a small town and but it's like you're in New York and I'm in here in the middle of nowhere. It's perfect. But I want to begin actually with your voice and, 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 and before we totally change gears. So I'm going to play this, which I hope will be audible in, in this video. So, so we'll try it. My prime of youth is but a frost of cares. He is but a dish of pain. My crop of corn is but a field of tares. And all my good is but vain hope of gain. The day is fled, and yet I saw no sun. And now I live, and now my life is done. The spring is past, 
and yet it hath not sprung. The fruit is dead, and yet the leaves be green. My youth is gone, and yet I am but young. I saw the world, and yet I was not seen. My thread is cut, and yet it is not spun. And now I live, and now my life is done. I sought my death, and found it in my womb. I looked for life, and saw it was a shade. I trod the earth, and knew it was my tomb. And now I die, and now I am but made. The glass is full, and now my glass is run. And now I live, and now my life is done. There we go. Well, that was beautiful. And there's two things I'll say about that. First of all, it comes from a column you write for, for Free Press every week called Things Worth Remembering, about poetry worth remembering. So first I was going to put you on the spot and have you recite it from memory, but I thought, better not, because I, I, I had a recording of you saying it. And I'd also thought of, of, of reading it, but I, I, when I listened to your reading it, it reminds me of... of, of of having talked to my friend Stephen Fry, who I'd like to, who I would rather hear read the phone book than hear me do anything. Um, but it was just beautiful. And I assume that it is committed to memory. One of the things that this column is about is not just the beauty of poetry and what it, and the impact it has on you, but, but the, the reason to, to memorize it, which is interesting because I have such, I, I have, I'm terrible at memorizing poetry. I, I, um, I, I know my friend Richard Dawkins loves to loves to recite poetry when we're together, and it's yeah. and it's lovely. It's it's not only enjoyable to listen to, but it makes one seem also oh refined as well. Um, when you know, and and I remember when I was a kid, you know, I had to recite learn poetry. I remember uh, performing Macbeth, uh, in fact, when I was about twelve. But boy, it is lovely to to have that. Um, and this comes from Tickborn's uh, Lament, which was yeah. which was a. Well, why don't you introduce a little bit? Yes, it, it was, uh, I think, the fifth uh, week of Collins. This this is a, a wonderful idea of Barry Weiss. She she came to me some time ago and she was setting up the free press and she said, I'd like you to do a column for me. And I said, well, I do sort of three or four columns every week. And yeah. uh, I mean, I'm fortunate in that the the, um, the world keeps on giving me a lot of material. Yeah. Um, I but I said, I... I said, I'm not quite sure I've got another one in me. And and she said, no, 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 I want you to do about something about something totally different. And it was actually her idea. She said, I've heard you over the dinner table, as it were, sometimes in your cups, uh, uh, um, you know, reciting things you seem to pluck out of nowhere. And I know you've got a lot of poetry in your head, a lot of quotations, a lot of prose as well by heart. And maybe you could write each week about why there's something you have in your head and why you have it there. And I thought that was just such a brilliant idea. I, was, I, I don't think I'd have come up with it myself. It really uh, is uh, lovely. It's a great editor's insight that, and um, and I've been doing it. And I've just loved it because, um, first of all, of course, it's a great change of pace. Yeah. Um, which, as you know, I mean, sometimes you know the old line about a change being as good as a rest is yeah, absolutely yeah. true, particularly yeah. for writing. But um, but yes, really, it's it's about something which I learned when I was, or at least learned is the wrong word. I intuited when I was quite young that it was worth having a lot of stuff up here, if you could, if you could lodge it there. 
Um, and as I actually said in the first column in this series, yes. which is about Pasternak and Shakespeare, yeah. I learned actually from the great polymath George Steiner, who died some years ago, a great Cambridge uh, intellectual of the 20th century. And he, he, I once heard him lecture when I was a schoolboy, and it just made a huge impression on me. And he said, relating a story I related about Pasternak and uh, the Writers' Conference in Moscow in 1937, mm -hmm. I remember Steiner saying, what do you have up here the bastards can't take? Yeah, yeah. They can they can Lots take of most of us. Maybe they'll try to take all of us, but they yeah. can't take everything. They can't take the language. They can't take the poetry. What we have in our heads, they can't actually take. And for some reason, I always always found that a very moving idea that that we need things in our heads that travel around with us as as we live. And the funny thing is, of course, is the era we live in. I was writing about this recently in a different column. The era we live in has this oddity, doesn't it? I mean, you mentioned, uh, Lawrence, that when you were a boy, you were told things by, taught things by rote. That's mm -hmm. one very good way to put people off poetry, of course. Well, actually, I enjoy, I enjoy the experience, but, uh, yeah. but I didn't maintain it. <laughs> some people do. I mean, uh, some time ago, I was speaking at a conference of teachers, and I mentioned something about the importance of learning things by heart. And this teacher said, I was taught T.S. Eliot by heart when I was a boy, and I've hated him ever since. And, and I said, well, you know, it might be your fault, not T.S. Eliot's. But anyway, but the point, uh, but I do understand it. Some people sort of get put off for life. And also they think, well, I don't want this. But mm -hmm. my point is, find the things that you would want to furnish your memory with. Mm -hmm. uh, find the ones uh, that, that that you could do with. And you'll, you'll find that they crop up in your life at, at strange times uh, often. But that that you'll need this stuff and and we used to call it a well-furnished brain yeah i'm not saying mine's by any means the best furnished not by a very long way but i have a sort of um attic like yeah. <laughs> brain and um and personally i it, it's it's been an enormous um solace and inspiration to me in my life there have been many times I, I relayed in the second column in this series about uh, T.S. Eliot yeah I was going to say T.S. Eliot and Terry Terry Waite um yes yes I mean that was another one that made an impression on me that Terry Waite who was a hostage in Lebanon for many years who I also heard speaking when I was younger saying that you know after being chained to a, a, a you know a radiator in a Beirut cell and dungeon for years he wasn't entirely alone because he had what was in his head and he had in his head among other things the four quartets of t.s Eliot. one of my favorite poems well in fact i think i wrote you after that to tell you and we'll get to t.s Eliot, but far later because t.s Eliot is one of my favorite poets um there i don't have many favorite poets i should say that i'm a philistine in many ways um or at least provocative Ooh, Lauren, but, but 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 um and and I I once got in trouble um, when I was at, at a position at Harvard uh, in the, something called the Society of Fellows, and one of the senior fellows was a one of the world's experts on poetry and Shakespeare. And I said to to provoke her one day, I said, if if poets have something to say, why don't they just write it down? And uh, and she never talked to me for three years after that. But <laughs> but my problem with poetry when I was what you you know it is true that English and for English classes turn people off reading and writing almost yeah. more than anything else in school. And, uh, you know, and I've always loved reading and writing, but, but it turned me off poetry for a long time because what I hated was the incessant interpretation, the incessant need to try and go into the writer's head and decide what they were talking about. I liked 
the sound of poetry and I like thinking about it myself and what and how it resonates with me. But I, I've never liked trying to get inside the head of an author in terms of trying to understand what they're more. And so that incessant need to to analyze poetry instead of just enjoying it. Um, I agree. Was, no, at some was, point it's like it's 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 like um uh being shown how a piano works. Yeah rather than just listening to someone play it you know yeah I for mean, me that's okay that's i don't mind that so much it's like that's like Feynman once saying that knowing how a, a rainbow works is not doesn't make it less exciting it makes it more exciting and i i do i think that but 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 trying to constantly look for hidden meanings um and, and what the intent of the author was uh, is well, something i you know i you know it, it may have been beyond me well i mean i could do no, it that, but i never trusted it no, it's a very common uh, mistake in teaching. The piano analogy is only, only give it, it, it really it only works if you say if you did that to someone who'd never heard of piano being played. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of teaching of literature, for instance, is you know I remember once I had a very bad teacher teaching King Lear, and you know we did the first line. What can we learn from this line? And you know like this. And I, yeah. I remember thinking I just want to know how the play goes. You know. Because I'm yeah, fairly no, sure it's badly for everyone. Exactly. That's um, probably why I, f I fell in love with Shakespeare, who, of course, the poet, because I was in some class when I was age 11, and we performed and had to memorize Macbeth, yes. and I turned out to be Macbeth, mostly because I was the only boy who was willing to wear tights. But, um, but uh, uh, and it was just a life-changing experience in so many ways, and it was just a joy, because in performing it, you have to think about it, obviously. But... Yeah. But the poet, the thing that I, the reason I started with this, which is your first of all, it's a lovely poem and it's your most recent one, your most recent column. But it does share in spirit what you talked about from Steiner and from Waite, and which is the fact that the the Gedanken sind frei, that our, our thoughts are free, that what, what's in our heads is always ours. And it and and it brings to mind. And so this was written before this young man who was 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 waiting execution the next morning and was executed um and and there's a long tradition of that and and it, it um and it brought to mind to me two things that i it's not not all such great writing has been poetry the two things that resonated with me that were very similar were i guess uh when i first learned about both these famous work the consolation of philosophy who mm -hmm. who was uh um, wrote a whole book about the consolation of philosophy awaiting a year for a year to be executed in a horrific way. And that really had an impact on me that, that even in the worst of times, philosophy ideas are yours and you can get great consolation and yes. as well as, as well as in, in, in writing the poetry or as in the case of Terry Waite, the beauty of listening to or, or remembering a, T.S. Eliot, and there's another one. I'm in mean, a much more American case because I, we were I, we were working on a movie about Thomas Paine and and The Age of Reason, which is his famous book. Of course, was written when he was imprisoned in France during the French Revolution, again awaiting execution and almost executed, except for a small accident and the death of Robespierre. But uh, um, both of those things, I in my own time, not just poetry, but the realization that writing and thinking take you through even the worst of times have have had a tremendous impact on me personally i don't know if they yeah. have for you as a writer I, I think, fellow writer I think, I think so and i think that it's also um worth pointing out that 
it signals something that's extraordinarily unique to us as human beings this this urge i mean what 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 species would would think of writing a three stanza poem on the scaffold yeah exactly something um there's something that tells you something extraordinarily deep about what we are as human beings that that impulse would even be there because among other things i mean um you know i'm i'm a great fan of jh hardy's mathematician's apology yeah mm-hmm. um, you know hardy says there that he says immortality is perhaps a foolish word but if it belongs to anyone it probably belongs to the mathematician and he and he he, he makes the rather beautiful uh, uh, um, observation that he says the calculus the calculuses of Archimedes will survive the plays of Euripides uh, yeah. not because they speak of the truth but because they are true and that this of course is a great uh, um, warning shot to poets <laughs> <laughs> from a mathematician but but it's but it's but nevertheless whether or not Hardy's correct uh, it is it is that 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 impulse even till the end to say I, I I will leave something, I will I will communicate. I will try to communicate a, a, a beyond this. Uh, that is that is a, a human instinct which is thank God is ineradicable from us. Yeah, I think I think so. And it and different it comes out in different people in different ways. You know, obviously, I think you and I as writers hope our writing in some ways will uh, live us. But I'm happy to have a hat as a scientist and 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 recognize and like to think that 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 you know winds change and we'll talk about that and 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 society changes but but the realities of the universe we we may be expanded upon but fundamental insights don't go away and 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 it's just a very it's it's a very satisfying thing for me to think that the contributions made to science will be there independent of yeah. my writing or or other things look the, barry's uh brilliance in having you do this and now for something completely different column was not lost on me and and i wanted to i wanted to begin with poetry and i promise we're going to end with poetry eight or ten hours from now <laughs> but or however but but because but i want it because we are going to dive into the from the heights of the human intellect and the human experience we're going to dive down to the lowest parts and we're going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous and and which you've written a lot about and so do i as you say there's lots of fodder for columns all the time because of it and 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 you know i i first i first got to know of you because of your writing about commentary about things that were ridiculous and i want to get there and and i mean and i want to focus eventually on two on your two be- last beautiful books both of which you know, there are books I read and, and where I, and I used to do this with my friend, Chris, my late friend, Christopher Hitchens, where I'd read it almost every page. I go, yes, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's great because by the way, both in the case with him and in you, although I think even in more of a case with you, our politics are, are in many ways quite different. And it's wonderful um, that we can have that convergence. And, and also I'm convinced we could have a as we will hopefully a little bit later on in the, in the podcast, have a discussion of things we disagree with in a way which is fine, which is good, and and should be ha- and should happen more often. Uh, yeah. Christopher was one of the people who could get along, even though he was viewed as a bulldog, could get along better than anyone I ever knew with people who had a completely different worldview from him. And I, I was very it, that had a big impact on me 
trying yes, to think about how yes, that's absolutely true. I remember I remember that that he um um I mean, of course, he, he as you well know, at the lunch, in particular, the dinner table, he, like Dr. Johnson, talked for victory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but, yeah, I was always impressed by the fact that he would... He once... One of my other great mentors growing up was Roger Scruton, the conservative mm-hmm. philosopher, having Christopher, who was, of course, a leftist, yeah. mainly. And Roger was two of my sort of uh, great um, encouragers. It always caused a slight uh, sort of... Um, uh, dichotomy sometimes early on in my thinking but I remember once telling Christopher that I'd just come from staying with Roger Scruton at his <laughs> then farm in Virginia I remember uh, and the only time I'd ever seen Christopher say anything mean about Ro- anything about Roger in print it was very mean and uh, uh, Christopher immediately said oh where are they living and I said well they're in Virginia and he said I must drop them a line look them up yeah, exactly. I remember when he told, well, he was going to have a, before he died, he was planning yet another one of those dinners that would be filmed. And I was very happy and honored that he wanted me to be in. And, and one of the people would have been Justice Scalia, about with whom I disagree uh, tremendously, and so does he. But that would have been a, a very, and it would have been four people who had very different worldviews. And I wish, I, one of the many, I miss him for many reasons, but, but I would have loved to have had that event at that dinner. Well, look, I want to I want to get to I want to get to uh, uh, the madness of crowds and, 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 and the war in the West, which are the two focus on issues I want to talk about before returning to poetry. But this is in fact, this is probably a unique podcast among all the ones that I'm because I always begin with origins. In this case, I began with poetry because it was such a nice way of starting and, and, and listening to you. But I do want to begin with your origins because I'm, I'm fascinated what what gets people to where they are. Um, before we talk about where you are now. And, you know, I've done a little bit of research. Um, and your, your your mother was an English teacher, your father a civil servant, right? Is that correct? Now, who had a bigger impact? So you decided to study English. Was it the example of your mother? Or did you was there a great encouragement when you're young to do reading? And, 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 and who, who among your parents had that kind of impact on you? And perhaps neither of them, maybe it was just self-induced. They um, they were both very encouraging, um, enormously encouraging. I I actually music was my first love, oh. um, and it was it was through music actually that I got interested in literature. Uh, strangely, not the other way around. Um, huh. When I discovered the texts that various composers and others were setting, and realized I loved the texts, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I would read the other works. So it, it was a, a strange way in, perhaps, but. Um, there's also one way of things being memorable is if they're also accompanied by music. Um, but uh, yes, music was really my first love. And it was through that that I discovered all sorts of new worlds. Oh. And um, uh, I was a scholarship boy, meaning that I sort of worked my way up through the schooling yeah. Yeah. in the UK to see the full gamut, you might say, horror of education. In the yeah, UK. well, I want to get to your educational experience, which I've heard some you describe in rather interesting ways and so um <laughs> but but yes and and then really i had that thing which i'm pretty sure you and almost everyone watching has had at some point which is at least one if not in my case more just transformative teachers sure. who um showed you 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 know the way to think um rather than uh, what to think yeah, and it imbued me with the same intellectual curiosities that they had, and um, 
uh, you know, as I say, I mean, it's almost a sort of cliche to society, but it's a cliche because it's true. Yeah, it's it, true. Teachers, a transformative teacher um, is absolutely irreplaceable. I cannot think of my life and how I've achieved or whatever I have achieved without that simple thing of of certain people saying very memorable things at specific and important times you know yeah it's it's you know i've had that experience but it's interesting as i've talked to people i've discovered a lot of people have it. some at least two or three people i know really of quite great accomplishment in different years said nope teachers had no impact on their lives they got in the way and it shocked me um but you know it's nice to know that that that, that nothing's universal in that sense but yeah great teachers and in my yeah uh, well for me interestingly enough there were a few good science teachers, but mostly it was it was history and English for teachers that had that big impact for me, even though well, I you, you can really I mean, you can put somebody off a subject very. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a bad teacher. Yeah. Um, it's a lot easier I, to do bad than good it's in, in the world in general, I think. Absolutely. But um, but yes, I, I, I mean, it's interesting to consider what the what the things are that we think of as being the signs of a good teacher. And I would say they're among other things showing having the humility to show the student that you don't know everything either oh yeah I, I mean, that, that that whenever i saw that I, I, I was knocked over that's the most exciting thing and i mean i've written my new book which is the no in england is the known unknowns and but it's it's say i say at the very my first line that saying i don't know is the most important thing you can yeah. do it. And I certainly always say that teachers and parents should say that a lot because it's an invitation to discover, to discover yeah. someone you think should know everything, doesn't know. It means, hey, that we can learn this together. And, and it's and really that it's an endless And that it's an endless journey. Exactly. Which is itself very important. I mean, the idea that, that one of my favorite quotes is um, from a man I had enormous amount of respect for and uh, I never, never met. He died before. I was about, but Alan Bloom. Uh, yeah, wrote, I know who he is, of course. Uh, I, I, was, I was with one of his uh, friends, Harvey Mansfield, the other day at Harvard, and um, I said to Harvey that um, there's a quote of Alan Bloom's, which I adore. He gave the commencement address at Cornell at some point in the 80s, and he said to the students there, he said, he, sa he said, um, uh, he said, these are your charmed years. <laughs> they, they sit between... They sit between the years of ignorance and the intellectual wastelands that most of us go into in adulthood. <laughs> they do not waste these years. Um, <laughs> but of course, really, the aspiration of any student should also be not to go into an intellectual wasteland. Of course, yeah. yeah. Know, of course, it's, it's, it's a jibe to make you not go there. Yeah, you know? and it should be the aspiration of every teacher to, to as we said, to teach how to, how to learn and, yeah. and you know and make learning a lifelong activity whether you're an academic or whatever you do and mm -hmm. and it's interesting you had your teachers because because you did say you started out in in a school a comprehensive school which you should describe for the american the ignorant americans among us or the north americans which was a grammar school and one assumes yeah. that a grammar school is better than a comprehensive school um is that is that a correct assumption no it's not i went to perfectly good church of england uh, primary and secondary schools the local yeah. one uh -huh. I grew up in London, and and I received an adequate education there. <laughs> I think it was anything spectacular. It was fine. Uh, I then was transferred to a, a a recently former grammar school. Grammar schools were in uh, well, the sort of jewel in the crown for um, 
families in Britain in the post-war period who couldn't afford to send their children to a private school. Yeah. Uh, which is called a public uh, school in England, isn't it? Or, which yeah. Is yeah. Public yeah. Just to make it clear how confusing. There's all sorts of, yeah. like liberal, yeah. 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 all of this stuff yeah. just yeah. explodes as it crosses yeah. borders. But, uh, but yes, yeah, a fee-paying school. If you couldn't afford a fee-paying school, uh, uh, then a grammar school was really your best hope. But the various governments abolished them, and then uh, there are still some left, but uh, um, they were thought to be too elitist and all sorts of other things. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I went to a school that had recently been a grammar school that was thought to be a, um, uh, therefore, to have some, you know, kudos. Uh, um, it, it was an absolute zoo. Um, uh, and, I mean, it was one of those times where, you know, I mean, the teachers spend all of their time doing crowd control, you know, and you have yeah. no time. Learned. Is this your words? It was described when I read it as a war zone similar to the, that many of the children's parents had escaped from. Was that must be your words? I assume. I say that, golly. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it could be my words. Gosh, um, yes, it, it was certainly rough. I mean, the, the year after I left, uh, a, 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 a group of boys at school gang raped a female teacher in the classroom. You know. Oh my God. Yeah, oh. it was. It was. It was pretty rough. Uh, so my parents realized I should get out of there pretty sharpish, yeah. Yeah. and I did. And I managed to get a scholarship to a small fee-paying school in London, and from there to the most famous school to in Eton. the country, Eton College. Yeah, which and from yeah, there Eton, to and then and then and then, and then and Oxford University. So yeah, so I have a slightly shapeshifter thing, as you, you'll understand, Lawrence. I mean, it's a because people inevitably wish to pigeonhole anyone, and that's quite understandable. On one hand, I have a totally um, the most establishment of educations, and yet I always am pleased that I also saw it from the bottom up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no. Well, you uh, know, I like that. I, you know, my again, my friend Stephen Fry's had you know had the experience of being in prison and then also yes. in Cambridge. So it's really yes. Yeah, it, yeah, and it's, that does that. That in his case, obviously, has given a very interesting view on things. I mean, there are certain things which once you've seen them, you can't unsee, and yeah. that's probably what it should be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, um, it, it it is interesting to me. I, I'm going to ask you. Uh, you know, I actually lectured at Eton once, much to my surprise, and um, and of course, I was dressed much more poorly than the students, who were all in tails. And although they more looked like they were, they all needed to be washed. But yes, it's, it's hard to dress smarter than an Eton schoolboy. <laughs> yeah, but it's an all boys school, and I, I have to ask this: Did it the impression? And actually, Richard's talked about this too, because because it 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 it, it almost was a tradition. I mean, you're gay, and and it and and a gay experience seemed. To, if you look watch at all the movies, the British you know boys' school movies, it seems like it's almost a British tradition to have that experience. And I, I know it's an appropriate thing to ask, but I'm wondering if it if just an aside, if it if it was during that period that you realized you were gay, or 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 and if it had any impact. No, I, I realized I was gay already, and okay. I was rather hoping to go to Eton and to have a lot of being gay. <laughs> okay, um, okay. It wasn't the only reason I went. I just dressed. Okay, that's good. Bound that's... to have like there's be more. Yeah. Of it. If books are true, then surely. Yeah. yeah. If all the jokes are true, then surely. Uh, actually, it was, during my time there, it was an incredibly homophobic place. Oh, uh, yeah. I was lucky enough to find some other students who were, who who were gay and who were at least able to talk. But uh, with each other, but um, uh, no, it was enormously homophobic because, of course, that's that's one of the other ways it can happen. Yeah, uh, when a lot of boys together is that, of course, they, they're exactly. very pick on that age. 
They're very yeah. sensitive about their sexuality. They, they're very... Yeah, they're very uh, insecure. And the way to be insecure sure. is to be homophobic. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when you're an adult and you're straight, there's like no need to be homophobic if you're not gay because it's like, who cares? I'm living like Unless you're incredibly life. insecure again. I think it's, you know... People Unless are... you're very insecure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but as a boy, I mean, I, you know, yeah. Uh, and I remember a friend of mine saying to me then, I wish there were girls at this school. And I remember saying, but that mean there were fewer boys. And, and that was... Yeah. But, yeah. And as he said, he's ever, they would have a civilizing influence. He yeah, said, I, I mean, I, I, I frankly, my daughter went to an all girls school for a while, and which was very good when she was very young. But when she was an adolescent, um, I, anyway, she eventually moved. And I, and I, and I, I, I'm now think you absolutely need, I think it's a very good as a socializing experience. It's, yes. it's, it's single, there's arguments for single sex education, but I think as a part of school, the whole school experience, one of the reasons why I'm not particularly happy with homeschooling is that part of the school experience is not just education, it's socialization, it's learning how to live with others and experience others. That's, 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 that's something, that's an insight that's particularly important after recent years of the pandemic. I mean, yeah, I remember the first months of the pandemic, I found up a friend of mine who's now retired uh, philosophy professor at Oxford, and we were speaking on the phone. And um, he said, I said, what do you think the long-term effect of this is going to be? And he said, Douglas, it's incalculable because he said the great success, the, the great secret of education is that it's not the professors who educate the students, the students educate each other. Oh yeah, I've always said that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, and, it's your peers. And that's the only reason I've encouraged kids generally, you know, to go to good universities or, it, I mean, I've also said you can get a great education at any university. I mean, it's you, you, you yeah, determine your own education. But one of the reasons to go to a place where people actually like to learn is that is that is that peer to peer um, education, Absolutely. and that makes a huge difference. Yeah. I found, by the way, I think I've said this before. I found um, intellectually speaking, Eton was much more stimulating for me than Oxford. Interesting. And it was part of the, the, the quality of teachers there. I mean, almost every teacher there could have been an Oxford professor. Some of them had been, yeah. But they also had that. Oh, I had some terrific tutors at Oxford as well, and some terrific lecturers. But broadly speaking, that desire to sort of impart the fire of to course. you was was more prevalent at each. Well, I, I mean, high school teachers are are there to teach, and and either they're love hating or it's just they've fallen into the job. And there's two categories, and one set are awful teachers, and one set are fantastic. But but they are interested in teaching, and you know, university professors, having been one for many years, are. Uh, teach, but in, in if they're at a first-rate university, they're interested in their researches, uh, and 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 teaching can be fun, and enjoyable. But it, but the dedication that that a that a high school teacher has is and if interesting experience. I I also found in many ways uh, high school a more interesting learning experience than than as an undergraduate university. Now I, I switched from many fields. Eventually, did mathematics and physics, which which is which was quite different than than the general education that I had, but the quality of the teaching uh, much better in high school. And I and I and it, and in areas I did because it turns out I did history before I did physics. The history level of history I did at high school was much more rigorous than at university. I found. Right. Um, yes. Well, there's also I, that thing that, that one of the great curses of our age, which is the curse of hyper specialization. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, that's right. And I yeah, I remember trying to fight it. I did. For a while, I started university as one of these degrees where you could do science and non-science at the same time. Eventually, I realized I had to choose, and I and I did mathematics and physics. But but I, I you know because I liked history, I did that for a year, and then took a year off school to actually work on a 
history book, which speak, speaking of which, while I worked on a history book during college, you wrote a book during college. But before we get to that, I want to get your boys, bossy book. Is it, how do you pronounce it? Is it bossy? That is it. Bosey, Bosey. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, Lord Alfred Douglas. I want to ask, you did a degree in English. Why did you choose English? Was it because of the teachers uh, you had in school? Yes, I had thought of reading music and ended up uh, changing to English. It, I, I actually, slightly worse than you described. I wrote my first book in my gap year between school and university. That's I great. Finished it, I finished it the week before I went to university, knowing pretty well that if I didn't finish it before going to university, I would, it would yeah. be unfair. That's why I had to take a year off from yeah. university. Yeah. It's the only you, way. And you have to complete a project like that if you're, yeah. if you're doing it. And so I turned up to university with a finished book, which uh, didn't get me love from all of my contemporaries. <laughs> Maybe some of your professors might have been happy about it, though. Uh, some of them were pretty annoyed. <laughs> Uh, they were particularly annoyed because I, it came out in my second year. It was a bestseller, mm -hmm. and um, that ruined my university career. Of yeah, course. I can imagine. But yeah, it would have been intolerable and insufferable, probably. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm totally insufferable to myself. I mean, you know, I, everything had been done to ruin me. You know, I was flown to New York for lunch, you know, and that sort of thing. And, yeah, I know. I mean, can imagine. I look back now and I think, I wish I'd have spent my time at Oxford doing what you're meant to do. Yes, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I spent my time wanting to get out. And well, that's uh, it. well. On the other hand, it's nice that you had a goal. But, but did you? Well, I, I was going to ask you why. I'll get to why you wrote the book. And by the way, we're we're going to eventually get to the, <laughs> the subject here. But this is fascinating. Um, did you ever consider you, you wanted to start? You started wanted to start music. But I'm just wondering, did you know? Because you're obviously, as I am, political, at least in the sense of being interested in what's going on in the political world. Even though we both have huge suspicions about politics governing human affairs, um, you think of political science? Did you? And 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 the other word that has never entered into our conversation so much, and so far, and one of the reasons I do this podcast is because I try and merge science and culture, and I think they're both, in, you know, science is a part of our culture, and I and 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 we. And we need to understand that and, and appreciate it. But did you ever have any interest in science or did you have any good science teachers? Well, that's a very good... I've thought about that a lot in retrospect because I read quite a lot of science books now. I have a lot of friends who are scientists, mathematicians and so on. Um, but uh, first, I don't think I had very good science teachers. Uh, I, I had a physics teacher who was noticeably bad, would basically mm. sit so down and say to us, you know, answer the questions on pages 10 to 15 don't yeah. disturb me hand in yeah. your work you know that sort of thing yeah but nevertheless that's a sort of excuse as well the truth is actually Lawrence um I made a fundamental mistake in my teenage years which I wish I hadn't have made now uh which was that I thought that it was an either or mm -hmm. um and I mean, it's not uncommon. I hope it's becoming less common. But that sort of C.P. Snow debate was still yes. going on. And there was a there was an expectation that if you were interested in the humanities, you were not interested in the sciences and vice versa. Mm -hmm. It took some time for me to realize the error of that. I mean, I started to realize it when I was at the Junior Royal Academy of Music, and I realized that one of my favorite composers, Benjamin Britten, was also a great mathematician. Yes. Or a very good mathematician. A good, and I remember thinking when I discovered that, oh, that 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 queers everything. 
you know, <laughs> old yeah. fashions. You know, yeah. old fashions. Then, yeah, I thought that that really mucks up my theory. Uh, <laughs> and and then I discovered that you know, I mean, actually, as you know, a lot of musicians, sure. I mean, Bach, for instance, you know, works in a sort of mathematical way. Yeah, and a uh, lot of mathematicians have certainly enjoyed music, and and scientists. Uh, Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. I, for some reason, I was pig-headed, I was stupid, too opinionated, and thought uh, I'm a humanities person, and therefore the sciences are not for me. Yeah. And, well, and people are told that too often, still, I think. In fact, yeah. as a badge of honor, I don't know if it's so much as when I was growing up, certainly, was, and when I, was, I remember when I was writing my first science books, and I, I taught at Yale, which was, you know, humanities were king. Um, and, and it was amazing to me what a badge of honor was for people to say, well, you know, I just can't get that science stuff as if it's a, as if, well, that makes me cultured. Uh, well, well, that exactly. But, you know, I, I also learned that there's an attitude towards that, which you can be encouraged to, to develop. And I was encouraged to develop it at Oxford accidentally or deliberately. I don't know by the various people, um, because inevitably in a college community, as you know, I mean, everyone sits at table at dinner and, you know, you sit beside mm -hmm. a physicist and opposite a, you know, a musician and the other sides are, you know, and it's the same high table with the dons, with the professors. Yeah. And I, I realized that Oxford, this incredibly important thing, which was that nobody was doing anything dull. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's and, nice. And I mean, I me and I remember there was once a, a set of lectures for all of us who'd just come up as freshmen, you'd say, in, in America. And we were given a lecture by four or five lectures, each by somebody who was, you know, in a particular department. And they're all wildly different. You know, there was a lecture about Anglo-Saxon poetry mm -hmm. by the Anglo-Saxon professor. There was a lecture about the mating habits of the fruit fly by one <laughs> of the biology professors. And I remember at the time, I still had that schoolboy thing in my uh -huh. head of fnar fnar yeah um, what a ridiculous thing to spend your life studying and he showed during the talk how fascinating this was yeah yeah and um and then i and and i suppose through that there's this line that actually your friend Stephen fry likes to quote from oscar wilde who described somewhere the oxford manner which is to play gracefully with ideas and um and actually, that is something that an institution can impart. And one of the most important things of playing gracefully with ideas is is sitting with somebody who's got a specialism you don't have and finding stuff out and, yeah. you know, and saying to them, I, I'm, I'm not following you there. Row back a bit for me. It's the aha experience, which is orgasmic. I yes. used to work in science museums when I was younger, and we used to call it the aha experience. And it is that where you suddenly see the world a new way. And you it gives an intense kind of pleasure and it's universal. It really does give an intense pleasure, I think, to everyone, no matter how turned off their mind is. Um, By the way, wouldn't you agree that one of the most stimulating things, and I, certainly this is something I found as an adult, almost invariably, uh, the things that spark me off now to uh, new ideas or new ways of seeing things, almost invariably come from disciplines I do not have. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's when I'm at a conference or a seminar with somebody who tells me something in a discipline I do not understand, which I, I get like one nugget of. And I go, yeah. that's what I'm trying to put my finger on in, a, in my own language. Yeah, yeah. No, and those are the things that make you have those sort of mind orgasms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, yeah, for, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, 
frankly, one of the, there are two things about this. One of the reasons I, I like to write books is because is it forces me often to have the discipline to, to enter into a territory I might not feel comfortable with and requires me to interact with people and learn things that I wouldn't otherwise. And that's, that's a lot of fun. But it also, it's one of the reasons I, I, I with, with what I'm doing now with, in this particular podcast is, is to jumping across from having scientists to journalists, to writers, to direct, movie directors, because that diversity of human intellectual inquiry is so fascinating. And it is all one thing, which I would can call culture. And it is, and, and turning off any part of it is, is a, is is a tragedy, but moreover, being turned on to new things is is a is a joy. And I hope you know, I hope in some ways, some some of these things impart that experience. And I'm sure my I'm, my conversation with you will will do that to some people as well. I think, but it also relates to something we are going to get to eventually, which is which is John Stuart Mill's notion of free speech. the The notion of learning that something you thought was true is wrong. Is a, is a great joy, but it's an opportunity, and it's the opportunity that free speech provides, but we'll get there. Um, uh, but it's interesting that, that, uh, that your music experience, so did you, did you decide you weren't enough good, good enough musician to, or to, that, that, to continue in that experience, or was it just because you, your interests were, were elsewhere? Well, what I actually, um, what I actually was, I, I, I was a composer primarily, oh, and okay. I, what I discovered in writing my first book was that whatever it was I was trying to communicate was better communicated in words for me. Yeah. yeah. That's not okay. the same with everyone, of course. Not yeah. every, I, mean, I know lots of composers who obviously don't have that interest sure. at all. Yeah. But that was at some point I became aware that that was the language I wanted to communicate in. I was always actually Christopher used to say that um, he was rather surprised when he discovered I was a musician. And he said, I remember him saying to me once, there's always one of the arts you can't do. Yeah, yeah. And music and is the one he couldn't was music. Yeah, I love but, music, but I'm 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 yeah. I'm incapable. And and my daughter is, was a, a very good musician, and and I and I thus got to be involved with a lot of the music community as a result. And and it it, it was I loved it. In fact, I actually got to perform at the Cleveland Orchestra, even that which we lived there. And and and. Um, and speaking of, of music and science and thinking of the two cultures, here's a story, an interesting story, because you, uh, there's a, a, a physicist I used to know named Don Glazer. He won the Nobel Prize for inventing something called the bubble chamber. And um, he was from Cleveland, which is where at that, I, I, when I escaped from New Haven, I, I became chair at a, a, a university in Cleveland. And he told me, he, he, was, he played with, the, at that time, the Cleveland Philharmonic, which was an orchestra below the Cleveland Orchestra, which is a famous orchestra. And he was a good violinist, and it's and he and he was trying to decide what to go into his college, and his, and and he and his father and he was okay in science, good. In, he was okay in science, and his father told him go into science. He said, because you, you're, as a mediocre musician, you'll never get a job, but as a mediocre scientist, you'll be fine. Yes, and there's <laughs> yes, and there's a there's a secondary part of that advice that I've heard people give, which is, um, if the thing you love. Is something you think you might end up hating if you go into it. Don't go into it. Yeah, that's I think and, and ruin the love. And you and, and you tend to continue to only love the things you're good at, ultimately, I think. And and that's that's true. I mean, I still play the piano yeah. for my own personal enjoyment and do every day, but 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 no, but on the on the thing of I mentioned about the arts you can't do, the art I really uh, envied was painting, oh. which I can't do at all. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, the painter Francis Bacon, as opposed to the essayist, uh, uh, made a great impact on me when I was a young man. And uh, I was always deeply envious of his ability to communicate everything onto the canvas. Now, that isn't something a musician can do. For instance, you cannot communicate anger. I mean, there are ways in which you can do it. You say the schizo of Shostakovich 10 is a pretty good example Mm -hmm. of a composer communicating anger at the almost certain start. But the point is, is that generally speaking, there's all sorts of um, specific registers that music is simply not uh, able to do. that having been said, it can also do a register that nothing else can no, do. No, exactly. It's and which is, says every, every, I, everything aspires to the form of music, you know, and uh, whatever was it, it was a uh, Wittgenstein at the end of his life says, said about one of his great philosophical works. I wish I'd said it in verse. In verse, yeah. I, I, I've always said that I think no writer hasn't at some point thought, I wish I could say that in music. But nevertheless, for some reason in my late teens, words started to take over and the interest in words and communicating with words became the thing I realized was actually what I was meant to be doing. Okay. I was As a side, I was going to ask, I mean, um, there was a lot of controversy when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize in Literature. I had no problem with it myself because um, his words uh, had a big impact on me growing up. Um, and it's less so than, well, and, and the music did too. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm wondering whether that, what, yeah, I mean, is the Nobel Prize than yours. The Nobel Prize in Literature has been given to so many ropey candidates by yeah. now. Not least, I could not. I, I I fell out of any sympathy with it when they gave it to Harold Pinter. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. Not least anyway. his poetry, which was beyond <laughs> awful. <laughs> yeah. No. Wait, it's one. Of, it's only. It's perhaps only. Only. It's second only to the Peace Prize for being. Um, yes. Inappropriate. I think among those prizes and prizes are largely arbitrary anyway. I was going to ask you why you wrote the book that when you did, but I, I you know, we, it, it's just been fascinating, but I do want to move on, but it is fascinating to me that you wrote the book when you did, and maybe you just wanted to have that experience. Um, but you quit in university, you, uh, other than doing that and writing a play and doing a few other things, you emerged as what you called a neoconservative. And did that arise, was that again inbred or was that, did that arise out of your university experience or or, uh, or what? No, it was uh, several things. One was um, that I had entirely, um, with the exception of very closely following the war in the Balkans, I had almost no interest in politics as an undergraduate. I had no interest ever in party politics. I had no interest in joining the labor club or the conservative club. Mm. All of these things filled me with horror, mainly because of the people involved. Yeah, sure. And uh, one of my embarrassments going back occasionally to speak at places like the Oxford and Cambridge Union is that I'm always asked by the various, you know. Yeah, I've been there. Posts. So that. what did you what did you do when you were here? Which posts did you have? And mm-hmm. I, would, I would have to say, I didn't uh, do anything here, really. <laughs> I, but you must be a member. I came once to something. But, 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 and, and, and the thing I can never say is because of people like you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, I did, I never had much appetite for that mm-hmm. incredibly voracious, hungry politic, politico type. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was interested in the ideas, and I was unusual by my last year at, at university of actually reading the paper every day. Um, oh. and that was unheard of. I remember the chaplain at, the, at my college said, "Usually, Douglas, 
when somebody's carrying a paper, it means it's the end of term. Um, <laughs> a newspaper signals that you want to find out what's happening in the rest of the world before yeah. you go back into it. Yeah. I was very interested in, in, in that. I suppose the neocon thing was, which is a word that I now regard as being almost unusable. Um, it means so many things and so many bad things to most mm -hmm. people. It's sort of, it's just one of those words you sort of have to give up. Yeah. yeah. But, but there was a general. To cut a long story short, there were two things really. One was the aftermath of nine eleven, where I thought, like a lot of us did at the time, rather bullishly, doubtless, and filled with certainty. But nevertheless, it felt that um, something had happened that needed um, uh, serious addressing and that an outrage had been perpetrated at the heart of American democracy, which which deserved more than the sort of platitudes of, you know, we've brought this on ourselves and the stuff that I... I, I thought at that point, you know, it was a, something that Jean Kirkpatrick said at the time of the Vietnam protests. She said, you know, nobody doubts that, that we can improve, but in order to improve, we have to continue and survive. Mm. And... Um, and that that was very much my view at that time. I didn't like the sort of many. many that was the first sort of shedding of friends. I think oh, I uh, was uh, was was uh, the friends who was in the sort of well, so what? America brought it upon herself. Um, you know, who are we to say and so on? And the second thing was my discovery of a group of very remarkable thinkers uh, from America, mainly who I started reading and really it was very sort of just sympathetic with um, specifically Irving Crystal, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and other figures like this, who One were- those I'm sympathetic to, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but people who, uh, apart from anything else, have made a very interesting intellectual journey. I mean, I think that right and left we might get into this mean less and less and maybe always yeah. have been tricky things to define i don't much like the dichotomy it's sort of like yeah. a lot of these dichotomies. it's useful to an extent and also tedious yeah uh, but uh these were people who made the intellectual journey from the left in the post-war era to the right during the cold war era and i mm -hmm. found for various reasons i just found these people attitudinally behaviorally intellectually very sympathetic. Uh, I liked their style. I liked their outlook on things. They were sort of liberal in a true sense, but not, but not being so liberal that their minds fell out. You know, yeah, 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 and, yeah. and 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 I saw a lot of people whose minds were falling out, and so I I sort of inevitably migrated towards the people who who, who I thought hadn't had that experience. Um, in retrospect, now I mean, one of my best friends said. Uh, because my book on neoconservatism is my one book I won't allow to be republished. Oh, because most of it is an intellectual history of neoconservatism, but the last chapter is not. And I would have to write the last chapter completely from scratch or just mm -hmm. reissue it and say, these are my um, mayor culpas, these are my... Uh, uh, but I wrote that in 2004, I suppose. And um, it's a young man's book. Which, funnily enough, my first book was not. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, look, I yeah, I I, I was going to ask you to find neoconservative. Anytime you say one says neo, like there's new atheists, and I'm always suspicious. Let me put it that way of neo, because I think most ideas have been around for a long time, and most of the, they're not really new, and and so I'm always suspicious of the word when it's attached to a word. But I don't want to even go into neo because there's so much more we can talk about, which we will get to, and some of those views might be called neoconservative. 
You did work for The Spectator, which, or maybe you still did, which is a conservative newspaper. Still so the associate editor, which associate is editor. a title that nobody understands. Yeah. Okay, well, I don't want to go there then. I, we, we, we may get there. I'm not, it, yeah, no, my least interest, the least interesting thing to talk about is editors in the world. So anyway. Um, uh, no, I started writing for Spectator when I was at Oxford. I started reviewing books for them. And then I started writing political pieces shortly after I was out of university. I think I don't. I may have actually written something for them once. Anyway, because it's, it, because even though I, yeah, it's funny how I've now bridged the transition from from a leftist to what mom, some people might call the right, only because I'm interested in truth and and reality. But um, uh, and we'll get there. But but it is. I, I thought it was poetic, if you'll forgive the the pun, that you um your interest in poetry appeared, and when you were in, as an editor of the Spectator, you were involved in the Poetry Prize, weren't you? Which uh, yeah. which was won by Boris Johnson. Is that not right? <laughs> yes, you touch on a piece of, uh, of uh, history, which I'm actually very proud of. That's right. Um, yeah, how long how long ago was that? Six, seven, eight years ago? No, 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 it was 2016. I remember it was a year of the referendum on Brexit. Uh, Boris Johnson was the Foreign Secretary. Yes. So what, to cut a long story short, it was a moment of brilliant inspiration, if I do say so on my part. There was a German... There was a German comedian who'd made a joke about Erdogan, president of, of, of Turkey. Um, Turkey. And uh, um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan had uh, been assaulted by this late night German comic who had implied that, uh, among other things, in a poem, a funny poem on mm. air, implied in other, among other things that Erdogan's relationship with the animal kingdom was not entirely platonic. <laughs> um, now, uh, that's in my where I come from, as I'm sure where you come from. That's standard insult fare by yeah. satire. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. Uh, Erdogan did not see the funny side. Uh, asked when he went, you know, when he got word of it uh, in uh, Ankara, uh, called for the chancellor, the then chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, to institute to prosecute the comedian. And mm-hmm. uh, there is a lese majeste law on the books in Germany that, about insulting foreign rulers. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely incensed by this. And yes, uh, the idea that in 2016 a European comedian could be censored by the state, let alone as, as at the time seemed possible, even imprisoned. Uh, a Dutch comedian friend of mine put out a very funny video. We sort of said, why don't we do an I am Spartacus thing? And mm-hmm. my Dutch friend put out a video saying that he'd given Erdogan a blowjob and he hadn't paid him for it and he, owed him the money <laughs> and he wasn't going to forgive him until he gave him the cash and 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 and, and, <laughs> and i decided to do it by through the medium of poetry so i announced that uh, uh i would give a thousand pound cash prize to the person who could write the most defamatory poem about Erdogan. And um, and I suggested we do it in the limerick form, which is, of course, only five lines. Yeah. And that adds, adds up to £200 a line, which, by my calculation, was the highest paid poetry prize in the world. At the oh, time. interesting. OK. <laughs> uh, so and I gave an example of what I thought should be the uh, sort of style we were going for and wrote an incredibly lavatorial and um, bestial uh, limerick uh, um, and um, said, this is the sort of thing we're after. Yeah. And um, and. Entries poured in from all over the world, including Turkey, um, and uh, it was it actually became a bit too much for me because there were so many thousands of entries coming in. Read them all. Um, and uh, anyhow, the point was that then, in the end, a mutual friend, whilst interviewing Boris, 
said, have you seen what Douglas is doing with this uh, poetry competition? Boris said yes, and they made up a, a limerick on the spot, which wasn't very good. But the friend called me immediately, said, Boris Johnson's just done a limerick. I think we should enter it and make it win. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was fixed. Oh, exactly. God. So it was sort of fixed because I and I thought actually that will cause ma that will cause maximum diplomatic damage to sure. Erdogan. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, that'll give most coverage to the comedian, most yeah. importantly, which is that it would therefore become clear that you could not prosecute a comedian in Germany for doing something okay. the foreign secretary in Britain had done. So, so it was, it was well it caused um it did cause a diplomatic incident. I still can't go to Turkey, sadly, but um you know, life is partly cutting <laughs> cutting off doors. Yeah, well, there's enough place. Yeah, going up bridges. Well, it was uh, a noble cause. I mean, it wasn't just. Uh, I do feel very strongly about that sort of thing. I yeah, feel no, very I mean, strongly about that. The satire is usually the best way to 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 respond to. Well, often the best way. Um, yes. To respond uh, to 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 ridiculous strictures on speech. And, well, um, people don't know what to do with it. I mean, there was a man in um, there was actually a man in Ankara shortly after my competition who was arrested by the police for asking the way to the zoo. Um, uh, by that point, the police in Turkey couldn't work out what was satire and what was simply traffic direction. <laughs> um, so oh, there you go. Okay. Well, that, yeah, I um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm I'm very but... pleased that I just produced a piece with the, where I was able to reproduce the seven swear words that George Carlin. Talked oh, yes. about could never be talked about on TV. I just for Quillette, I, and it came out, and it's gonna. I think it's gonna come out a Canadian paper too, and I want to see how they, what they do with those words. It's anyway. very interesting. In, in any case, we'll see. But this lead, th th this this kind of um, provoking, is um, is is is. I, I know that's not the reason you write books, but part of the reason to get way to get people to think about things is provoke and. I have to say your book, the last two books have been provocative in a sense. And, mm -hmm. and one of the things I, one of the things I really enjoyed about them, besides the fact that they're brilliant, um, is um, brilliantly written. And, um, and uh, I agree with most of the stuff in them too, which doesn't hurt. Um, I want I want to go to the madness of crowds, which, which, um, which is, you know, uh, I was surprised. I don't, I read it. I completely reread it again the last two days. And, 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 um, uh, for which I was cursing you in the middle of the night at one point the other day, but um, not only because I, I really want to get through it um, again. Uh, the you don't mention. I, I, I'm assuming the title comes is related to Charles McKay's 1841 yes. book. I didn't see any mention to that in, in the in the book, but he wrote. You know, it's a. I think I really, mentioned in introduction. I think I mentioned. I thought, in I, really, I didn't see it. So so maybe I missed it. But 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 I'm sure it must be there yes. because I didn't see it in the introduction. But. But it was a great book called um, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, 1841. And I loved it. I, I think, I don't know if he said this or someone else said this. It was a distillation of some of the most humiliating, terrifying, and confusing things humans have done in collectivity, which yes. I think is a wonderful thing because, and, and what he made fun of was alchemy and the crusades and haunted houses. And so you then decided to write a book where you'd make fun of things like gender, race, identity, and trends uh, and and I thought, well, that's that all the thing. Those are all the things you're told, sort of never to talk about at a Thanksgiving dinner or a, or a dinner with friends, right? All the things that are going to produce nothing but vitriol. And I yes. thought, what a great, what a great, what a great subject to move. You know that 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 segue from the madness of crowds, from alchemy, etc., to the things that really are viewed at with 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 craziness. 
And, well, and, and yes, the interesting thing is, Lawrence, is the, the, the only people I do hope I credit Charles Mackay. I think I do somewhere. But um, yes, the, 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 his book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Manners of Crowds, is 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 today I discover only really well known uh, by people in hedge funds and certain bits of financial markets. Uh, I've spoken uh, at places where people have said, you know, um, I give this out to all of my employees when they join. And actually, I had a wonderful economist friend who died, died a couple of years ago from COVID, actually, called Deepak Lal. And I remember he once said to me years ago that he had gone to a, uh, a library of a new university somewhere. He used to teach economics at UCLA and LSE, among others. But he had been taken around a new library somewhere, I think, in the Indian subcontinent. But anyhow, and, and he asked to see their economic history department. And they didn't have one. And they said, well, well. They, they regarded economic history like medical history yeah. as it were as something which we'd gone beyond oh i see interesting so, so the important thing about giving the man uh, the man's extraordinary popular delusions and man's crowds to, to people who work in markets is this is the bit that it could be forgotten knowledge and will be the, the knowledge you need the most yes yes absolutely um <laughs> And yeah. and funnily enough, all of the modern editions of Charles Mackay's book only include the bits on bubbles, on financial bubbles, financial bubbles, okay. bubble, the Mississippi bubble, and so on. And that's a shame because the original includes, as you mentioned, these social ones as well. Yeah, you know, I, I have an old version then. Yeah, somewhere. No, I mean, and I mean, there's there's much more in this. I mean, I have a book somewhere above me here, I think, called We Believe the Children that a friend lent me recently yeah. about the the child satanic sex abuse scare yeah, in America yeah. in the 1980s, where yeah. went to prison for, for uh, were given sentences of hundreds of years. I mean, some of the longest yeah, yeah. sentences ever for moral panic, which ended up to be based on nothing. And yeah. I'm very happy see, to have inter had a podcast with the psychologist, the woman who, who showed this was nonsense. And yes, it, it, and it's so so both of these things, the, the, the memory that there are financial stampedes and madnesses, but also social uh, sort of contagion madnesses um, is very important to know about. And we, we always look back on them with such sort of uh, disdain. Who could possibly think that? But, you know, these things have happened in our own time as well. Yeah, maybe. And it's sort of in some sense, I suppose it can comfort us when we do look at the present madness of crowds, which you and I are going to look at and talk about that, um, that at least this maybe one can sometimes think this, this too shall pass. But yeah. uh, even if it doesn't seem like it will. And in fact, speaking of poetry, I guess the reason to think about these things is a one of my favorite lines from Mark Twain about history is that you probably know what he said. History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure rhymes a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And, one and, of the truest things ever said. Yes. Yeah. And and um, by the way, I can't help but think there's a book that I first learned about that book, about the McKay book, because a friend of mine, a very well-known physicist, actually referred me to a, 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 a more modern version of it written by someone I love called Martin Gardner. Um, and I don't know if you've ever read it called Fads and Fallacies in the Name of Science. And if you well, haven't, I'm going to buy it and send it to you. Let me make a note of it to myself. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it, 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 is, it is a modern version of, of, of that, which is, um, you know, which is really, and, and, and it does talk about uh, things, including financial is issues, but it's a, it's a wonderful book. You should look at it. It's a, it's well, a, and I mean, 
I'd love to, but I mean, I mean, look at look at what's going on at the moment. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. oh, absolutely, collapsing, and you know, you could, re- you could rewrite that book. It, 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 but he he used to write for Scientific American and, and give these wonderful mathematical puzzles, and but he was a remarkable guy. And um, and uh, anyway, it's it's a it, and then so I like to sort of, if you wish, I like to think of the progression of there's a McKay book and then his book and now your book, which we're going to talk about, and. Um, and which is a madness that I, we we both agree is going on. In fact, to be in in the interest of a full disclosure, you and I prob- first met personally at, in Portland when I lived there, uh, having dinner with with our mutual friend Peter Bogosian, um, and talking about the very issues that we both share uh, uh, in our, our concerns about, which which are the issues that have, to my amusement, I. I see myself called a, a conservative pundit at times, which is hysterical since I'm far to the left of most people in many other ways. But it is this craziness. And, and the, at the very beginning of the book, you say, and what I plan to do is, is, is I'm going to focus on a number of quotes you've gone through. And we're going to go through there and try and get to the, a little bit to the, to, the, to the war in the West and then return to poetry if we have time. And, if it, and we'll see how it goes. If it's too long, and if you and if you're enjoying this, we can always stop and 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 then and then re- carry it on another day because I'm enjoying it. It's up to you, but um, you're very. You say we're going through a great crowd derangement in public and in private, both online and off. People are behaving in ways that are increasingly irrational, feverish, herd-like, and simply unpleasant. The daily news cycle is filled with the consequences. Yet, while we see the symptoms everywhere, we do not see the causes. And you say the simple fact that we have been living through a period of more than a quarter of a century in which all our grand narratives have collapsed. This is your rationale for why it's happened. One by one, the narratives we have had were refuted, become unpopular to defend or impossible to sustain. The explanation for our existence that used to be provided by religion went first, falling away from the 19th century onwards. Then over the last century, the secular hopes held out by all political ideologies began to follow in religion's wake. In the latter part of the 20th century, we entered the postmodern era, an era which defined itself and was defined by suspicion towards all grand narratives. However, as all school children learn, nature abhors a vacuum, and into the postmodern vacuum, new ideas began to creep with the intention of providing explanations and meanings of their own. And um, and that... Uh, one question I wanted to ask, which is, one could infer from that, and I don't think you mean that, that the, some people have said that that part of this, what you and I both agree is a secular religion nowadays, comes from the fall of religion itself. Mm. I don't think that's the case myself, and I wanted to ask if you, if you, if you think the fact that, if you think religiosity would have saved us from that or not. Well, I think it is religiosity. I just think it's a new sort of cult version of it. It is. It is new cult version. I agree with you. We both agree there. It's a little because it's a little because it, I mean to refine the point about the religiosity of it. I think that uh, I, th- I think it is more cult-like than religion actually, because yeah. a cult is is something that says you know, and if your family don't agree, cut them off. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, exactly. Uh, um, well, some religions say that too. Sometimes some religions say that too as well. But <laughs> and certainly have done in the past. Yeah. 
But I mean, in the present, I think it would be an unusual vicar who would tre tread into the pulpit and say... It would be an unusual vicar. It might not be an, an, an unusual uh, Ayatollah, or, for example. Oh, very a very commonplace Ayatollah, almost yeah, yeah. dime a dozen uh, <laughs> And, and and you know and that's just but but and as I keep pointing out the, the only difference is one of history a vicar of five hundred years ago would have been exactly the same as a Ayatollah today um, in the sense yeah, of England would have burned someone yeah. at the stake easily for for the wrong views. And, that's, and, that's certainly true. Everyone's been through their own pasts. I mean, um, but I do think that 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 I mean one of the things I tried to get to just as you know you cut through bracken in my experience at the beginning of a book you sort of cut through bracken to get to the place you want to start from yeah and uh i i i put that in about uh, about that because i do think that the absence of religion leaves a hole and the hole is a god-shaped hole and um and in particular uh there is this there is this desire to be good and do good and of course, as everyone knows, to, to uh, really do evil, you've got to think you're doing good, and um, and the the vehemence and the the dogmatism in our day. I mean, you know, there's this very interesting. Whenever you see videos online of a sort of, um, you know, the new religion sort of protesting, you know, one's always struck by their means of communication. It is, for instance, shouting something repeatedly. Yeah, that—that's a quasi-religious way, of, like drumming something into you until you give in, and not it, wanting and repeating it so that you can't say anything because the last thing people want to hear is something they don't yes. want to hear. It's, 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 it's literally the opposite of communication. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, 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 it's it's dictation and dogmatism repeated so much i mean i i'm surprised they still employ the tactic because for many of us like myself nothing would make me less likely to join an argument yeah that person shouting the same thing over and over again um so uh, uh, yes i do think that it, it's got lots of the hallmarks of religion as i've pointed out before it has also got the disadvantages of not having certain things that certain religions like do. redemption like redemption exactly. the most important uh, you know uh, the judeo-christian religion has this particularly important issue on, of redemption mm -hmm. you know and i quote hannah arendt who's not a thing i'm especially fond of but she um in an essay in the 50s wrote something which i cite in the madness of crowds about the, the you know this this fact that that you know, it is the nature of our action in the universe that, that we we as human beings do not know the consequences of our actions, of our words even. And as you know, I mean, all writers fear this to some extent. You can't fear it too much or you would never start typing in the morning. But but you don't know who's going to read your words and, and misinterpret them. Um, you can be certain that they'll be misinterpreted. There'll be somebody who will. And then you've got to work out, well, are they malicious inter misinterpretations or misinterpretations because I've written badly? I mean, you know, yeah, that, and that's, that's, yeah, that's, the, that's the concern is that you, you don't want to knowingly mislead. Uh, exactly. And so that's and that's why you have, you know, that's why as a writer, obviously, we all have to hone our craft and be as precise in, in our, our language and our meaning as possible. But but um, but yes, I I, I suppose that. 
my, my concern in um in 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 recent years has been that there has been this this uh leaping in of bad faith arguments of deliberate wanton misinterpretation uh, assertion of things that we don't know yeah. and an unwillingness to be humble before things and the obvious example i i, I give and sorry and, and just to finish the point on aaron aaron says you know because we don't know how our actions will reverberate in the, in the universe the only mechanism we've ever come up with to answer that is forgiveness it's the mechanism of forgiveness and that is something as i mentioned the mantle crowds that our own era spends almost zero time thinking about in fact the opposite we we we, we Quite the opposite. specifically as you point out at length uh, the, the modern world especially social media makes certain that people's words that may be misinterpreted are never buried <laughs> Yes, well, it used to be the old thing in public relations. The wisdom used to be apologize and move on. Yeah. Now you apologize and you're killed. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, Jeremy Clarkson, who yeah. writes, if I, I write for, wrote a, say, over the top, deliberately sort of meant to be funny column about mm. Meghan Markle and uh, Meghan and Harry Sussex, as you call them. And, um, you know, he ended up being forced to apologize five times. And then the Sussexes didn't accept his apology and insulted him again. And you just sort of think, well, in that case, we're in some very strange world. Uh, anyhow, um, my own view is that we should understand and be forgiving if we can be, because we'll need forgiveness ourselves. And I say that on certain things, I mean, I finished the Madness of Crowds on the trans issue, which now lots of people are writing about. I'm ha yeah, happy to see. Yeah, I, I was, uh, but, but at the time, very few people were. And my simple assertion was, we're pretending to know things we just don't know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, that's the arc I'm eventually heading towards is because that's one of the th reasons why I think it's, um, why I resonate so much with it. Because, and it's, I, I don't mean this to sound self-serving, but it will. Because, you know, I wrote a book that now my new book is coming out. It's called The Known Unknowns. And the whole point about it is to is to acknowledge that that's to me the greatest thing that science offers us is the fact mm. to realize that you know we don't know and to know what mm. we don't know is 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 incredibly important because it's an invitation to learn but it's also a humility it's a recognition that there are things we don't understand and i and 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 we need that more than anything as a civilizing influence as well as a learning I Influence. I can't wait to I can't wait to read that. But can I ask your view on something then? Because um, one of the things that strikes me about this thing of we don't know is, as you say, it requires a certain humility. But but here's something else. It also strikes me that it requires a certain amount of um, not something like confidence. Yeah, sure. In that, um, I mean, I have a friend, for instance, who works with gang members or reformed gang members. And she always says, you know, the main problem is uh, it's all about respect and respect, having to be respected. And you realize these are people with no self-respect. And that's why they're so in, intent to well, even sort of stab somebody if they show them any disrespect, perceived or otherwise. It seems to me that when it comes to admitting to things you don't know, you can't do it if you have that massive self-doubt. Oh, and you can't do it. Yeah, I mean, that's why I think one of the reasons why some teachers, frankly, are hesitant to say it because they teach from a syllabus because they're very worried 
about being presented with things they don't know and and okay. and they have that insecurity um and it really takes great great confidence uh to be willing to recognize that you don't know things but that's one of the lessons i think when i view of one of the reasons to learn science and it, it, i've always you know it's like learning any any human intellectual activity is not just the content the content it may be fascinating i happen to think it's among the most fascinating stuff the humans have ever come up with obviously but but more equally important it's that that it teaches you things a way to a, a way to approach the world that is useful in other ways and and that and it and 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 the 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 scientific method the constant need for skepticism is one thing but the constant willingness to be wrong i think is is a really one of the greatest gifts that science can give us and and yeah. uh but you can um, probably only do it if you if you felt in the past that you've done things which are right you know yeah yeah if, yeah and and in fact it's really important when you say i don't know people misinterpret that when we say when, when we talk about things and people often use it as a as a as a hammer against science because they say well you don't know this and and it's true we don't know a lot of things but people misinterpret not knowing something doesn't mean we don't know anything <laughs> and you know yeah, and, and i often well, say it's not evidence for god it's evidence of lack of knowledge and or it's not evidence for it's it, so acknowledging that you don't know something is not the same as saying you know nothing and i think there's and that's a, another confusion that that i think well i mean imagine if on something like i mean the reason why i did gay first in the in, in the man's of crowds was to yeah. sort of try to ease the reader in saying look yeah, i'm willing sure. to on the one identity crampon that I can claim to have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, trust me as I'm willing, you know, I'm doing the yeah. others on as yeah. well. Um, uh, but I, I, I do say sometimes to friends, if you want, skip the gay chapter, you know, I mean, you know, you don't have to, but like, if you get bored reading about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it is boring. But anyway, the point is. No, 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 just, no. It's, I think it's interesting because it is. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll, we, we are, we're going to talk. The point is, is so. the really interesting one, the really, because gay and trans that I write about in that book affect such a small percentage of the population. Well, the trans, two, I would, it used to be that trans was a much smaller percentage than gay. And we're seeing, yeah. we're seeing that change well, for social. Yeah, if, 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 if the current trajectories continue, everybody in America is going to identify <laughs> as trans by the year 2050. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. But, or at least queer, that's the one, because that's, yeah. that's the only way in which a straight white male can now be on the victim hierarchy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, unless you do a, a 23 and me test and really luck out obviously yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but yeah. but um but uh but no the the, the one that, that that interests me in that was I, I thought firstly the relations between the sexes between men and women because i always say if i don't even if i don't have any dog in this fight myself yeah i, I do want the species to continue yeah um and um that's awfully generous <laughs> anyway <laughs> Um, and would like my benighted, beleaguered, heterosexual friends to, to be able to have some happiness in this life. Anyway, and the other thing is that, that I also mentioned with regards in regards to race, because that's something that now affects absolutely everybody. Yeah. I, I think these issues, I mean, all I try to do in the Madness of Crowd is really to open them up and say, these are the really interesting things that we we should be thinking and talking about. Yeah, and we should be talking about, but we're either afraid to talk about or we're afraid to listen about. One, yeah, both are, yeah. you know, some things get talked about ad nauseum, but not listened to. And some, as we'll talk about art, you can't even dis ask questions about, which for me, yeah. 
is, is we'll get to that near the end and mostly with trans stuff now which is really the the thing that offends me the most because as a scientist ev- nothing is is sacred and not everything is should be questioned and and that as an okay. academic that's the the thing that depresses me most about the modern world including the academic world is that increasingly institutionally uh, think people are accepting the notion that some things can't be questioned and once you do that well, education yeah. goes out the window by the way, that's why, and I think I mentioned this somewhere in the Manus of Crowds, but this is why when I was starting to notice the subjects for that book and sort of thinking it over, um, one of the, the big signifiers to me was friends of mine who were scientists who were saying to me, I can't do this. Like, I can't agree to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, people had no, some sometimes had no interest in social policy, yeah. no interest. They just wanted to do their thing. Yeah, which is what and they found. Are. That they were being told to lie yeah and and they were just like i can't do this the people in the humanities have been lying for years yeah you know, people they, in the humanities have lying for years and i figured it would never happen in science right. and i wish there were more people who'd say i can't do this but what we're finding is that i mean most I, i've said this before in podcasts and i you know i was a professor for 40 years and i academics are largely cowards <laughs> and oh. And and because it's a very safe profession, it's sort of you know it's it, 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 you're 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 safe. And and the main thing you want to do is keep your head under the under the radar and and just go on and do your own thing. And that's mo- most academics want to do. Okay, just don't bother me. I just want to do what I'm doing. And 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 therefore, even though they don't believe a lot of the nonsense, they don't have the unfortunately i mean and i would say it's intellectual courage to be able to, to be willing to speak up against it which is fine if it's a minority if it's just a little bit of nonsense when i was when i taught at yale we used to just laugh at the deconstructionists down the hill when i taught in the 80s there because it was just nonsense and this will never affect us so why worry about it but eventually you know just like you know they're going to come for the lawyers and then they're going to come for you know and 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 this weren't as the sluices weren't as um strong as we thought they were yeah yeah absolutely now i before we talk we've sort of talked around this i should say the the things you talk about that are madness are largely this you right away social justice identity group politics intersectionalism as they relate to the 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 topics we talked about which are gay women race and trans in that order going um i think from the least incendiary to the most incendiary uh uh topics which i think is a good way to do that and 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 right off you you, you do um and i i have to say i first learned this from 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 chris Hitchens because uh but 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 then but then i i i recognized was john stuart mill this notion about why free speech which is being attacked in all in almost all the contexts of 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 those four areas uh, is being attacked. Um, it, it, well, you, I'm going to read you. I'm going to re- read what you write here. On, in On Liberty, first published in 1859, John Stuart Mill famously laid out four reasons why, for why free speech was a necessity in a free society. The first and second being that a contrary opinion may be true or true in part, and therefore may require to be heard in order to correct your own erroneous views, which is which is what Christopher first sort of made clear to me when I went in a discussion. The third and fourth being that even if the contrary opinion is an error, the airing of it may help to remind people of a truth and prevent its slippage into an ignorant dogma, which may in time, if unchallenged, itself become lost. And you talk about the modern world and you say, 
things have moved so swiftly that it's also been seen to be the replacement of one dogma with another, a move from a position of moral opprobrium to a position of expressing opprobrium to anyone whose views fall even narrowly outside the remit of a newly adopted position. The problem with this is not just that we are at risk of being unable to hear positions that are wrong, but we may also be presenting ourselves from listening to arguments that may be partially true. And that's, I think, what, what's so characteristic of the four topics you talk about and what, why you and I share this, well, obviously, this, um, this, this uh, uh, emotional and intellectual abhorrence to it, enough for you to write books about it and me to sometimes write articles about it. Um, and, um, and, and your first example is, 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 is gay. And and in talking about the, the the shift from the remarkably wonderful shift that ten years ago you and I would both have celebrated in on its own, which is the amazing speed with which mm. from far from instead of being um, ostracized to being accepted universally, uh, being gay. For me, I, I have being heterosexual. I have I did have that learning experience of having a child, and uh, and. Um, uh, and for me, it was kind of obvious early on that it wasn't going to, it was not going to be an issue because I saw things like gay marriage being disputed by old, older men, largely in Supreme courts and laws. But when I saw my daughter, I saw that for kids her age, it was not an issue at all. I mean, it, it's just not, and you know, like Max Planck said about science, you know, science proceeds one funeral at a time. I realize that you know it's sort of, eventually these older people are going to be dead, and and these young kids have an, have a sociology where it's not an issue, and so it won't yeah. be surprising to me if there's this sudden shift because of a generational shift. I don't know if yeah. it surprised you any more than that. Um, no, only that I mean it, it was shown that um, attitudes towards homosexuality changed in countries like America in exactly the same way that attitudes towards things like inter interracial marriage changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They changed depending on just the, the extent to which people knew somebody um, in, you know, in this situation. I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, if you just, it's just a matter of, like of the more people someone. came out, the more was being gay, the more people realized that, uh, well, you're not talking about them. You're talking about my friend or my son or my nephew or whatever. And um, and and that's the same way all of the, the so, social genuine social progress really has occurred in our time. Uh, I mean, why are there so few people in America today, for instance, who are against interracial marriage? Mm-hmm. Um, it's because there's very few people who are in such a silo that yeah, it's the people who are in silos who remain that way, right? You know, so, once you know, it, and if you talk about it later on, I think. I forget whether it's in this book or or the uh, War in the West, but maybe it's the end of this book. Oh yeah, you talk about the historian. What's his name? The American historian, um, ancient historian. He said one of the great things about American democracy was face to face. Oh yeah, Tocqueville. Yeah, Tocqueville yeah. is one of his most interesting observations. Yeah, so that's how whole way in which Americans seem to uh, decide things. And and in fact, an example, which of course comes after the Tocqueville's time, but the one the ones that's always on my mind is the Lincoln Douglas debates. Yeah, they went round the country doing that, and Lincoln was really precise about going over the transcripts of those debates and correcting any errors, not not uh, making it better, but any 
just reporting yeah. errors, yeah. making sure that it was the most accurate possible version of the debates that were being read in state after state across the union. And that's that's how things used to be done in America. And and that face-to-face is... It, it, falls over in this way it's meeting people it's actually getting to know the person rather than your imagination about the person or even what they say it's it's the human it's the humanity that yes. that that changes your views towards people ultimately and and um yeah and it's always been for me you know i love being wrong it's one of the, just as i told you i like and i i get to be that way a lot uh but um but the one of the great joys is finding that someone you thought you'd I guess dislike is one way of thinking about it. it you don't. I, I mean, I have to say, one of the people we both know, Jordan Peterson, is a person who I I had many, I still have questions about a number of his views and some of the things he writes I, I think are nonsense. But but when we talked, when we first did our first podcast or even talked before that, I and and he was genuinely interested in learning. And then I thought suddenly I had, and, and vice versa, I wanted to learn. Then I, I totally changed my view. I thought, okay, here's someone I can have a discussion with who's actually interested in asking questions, and it changed. Yes. Yeah, it was. It no, was I, I adore Jordan. He's a wonderful man, a wonderful thinker, enormous force for good. Um, but 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 there have been figures even in my own life who I have had disagreements with, often profound disagreements. But you, if you do it face to face, you you almost always learn something. Of course, yeah. Like, like I've always been very very keen with television to to always be in the studio if you can if you can yeah always learn something uh, from a host or from a fellow guest you you, you always if, you, if you've got your eyes open for it you always learn something you think ah oh, he can't do that he's not very good at that or or um wow my gosh she she picked that up fast you know yeah I, yeah, yeah 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 if you listen like you, you, to listen. you can be in a commercial break and and the interviewer says so uh, like, uh, you know, and they ask a very basic question, I think, and then you come back and they, they do it as if they've known it all their lives. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You, and you can have a bit of you that thinks, oh, hang on, do you do that with everything? But then the other bit is, that's really impressive. That you could do that, yeah. Technically. Well, you see, you're lucky you do it. I, unfortunately, because I do, I was going to, we've talked about this before, the fact that when I write, when you write, you're misinterpreted. And I'm, my feeling has always been good. Uh, I'm, it's okay when I write about because being misinterpreted about the beginning of the universe is never going to hurt anybody. So I'm safe. <laughs> but, but similarly, uh, my experience with having been on TV is quite the opposite because they're terrified of science. And so uh, I always have to walk them through it. It's because instead of appearing confident, they almost always, uh, uh, their lack of confidence shows through. And it's a matter of, in the, during, during the commercial breaks, it's a matter of saying, it's okay, this will be okay. We'll get through this, don't worry. Yeah. Well, of... that, that 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 is, I mean, one of the things I've railed against a certain amount in the past few years has been that the expectation that anyone in the public eye must perforce be an expert in everything. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that's a, a shame. Um, yeah, no, but it's interesting. I Well, this is totally aside, but what the heck? I, I, it's fascinating to me what you have to say about this. So, uh, that's one of the problems um, as a, as a writer of science that I have is people are willing. To, it, it, I first noticed it in scientific book reviews. A great book review of a scientist book is it boggled my mind. That's make it a bestseller. If you if you took a, as a, the example I used to give was say John Kenneth Galbraith, an economist. But if you read a book review in say an American magazine like the New Yorker, you could pick a British one. 
you'd never you'd never you'd never read a book review of that saying it boggled my mind even if the person really didn't get what the person said they'd be willing to go on for 10 pages about it yeah. but the, but but the the problem with science is you can make you can appear foolish much more quickly i think and people realize that and it makes them often afraid especially tv people afraid it's okay to not know the answer you know to to misinterpret you know, to be contradicted on politics, but somehow sure there's a fear. Are you sure that isn't just simply the uh, uh, scientific illiteracy in the general well, population? It, oh, I think it is scientific literacy, but it's also a prop. But it's it's the it. I guess this is going to be sound patronizing, and it is. But it's because scientific literacy is easier to is easier to spot sometimes than yeah. literacy in other areas because it's easier to see when you're wrong. Or when you're speak, spouting nonsense, because because they're manifest empirical evidence. Now it would be great if that were true in areas like trans and everything else. But 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 um, in the in the hard sciences, at least the kind of science I do, it's 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 easier to spot when someone is just completely spouting nonsense, and whereas you can spout nonsense uh, in 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 theology or 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 um, politics, uh, uh, politics. In fact. People spout nonsense in politics and are I've noticed the that. high position. What? I've noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, let's 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 get back to this book though. I, and I'm I'm really I hope you don't mind. We're going all over the place. And I think people enjoy it because I'm enjoying it. But um, your point about the the chapter on on, on gay, it seems to me, because you really want to still poke people's sensibilities here, is is this seesaw? Is the notion? So it went from gay being being a, a, an anathema to gay being accepted, not to, to gay being accepted, and then as all of these things, you point out once once you've achieved in all of these, you know, oppressed minorities, once they achieve what you think would then be time to say this is reality, it crashes through, and suddenly they become more oppressed, and not yeah, only yeah, that, yeah. become the argument that it's not that being gay is is bad, it's that being gay is better. Yes. And, and you're right. You, 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 yes. I'll, I'll, I'll quote you here. You say because in some way the perception is developed, and this, and this relates to to a a heterosexual person having a homosexual experience versus a homosexual person having a heterosexual yes. experience. And you say because in some way the perception is developed that to once be gay is to have fallen into your true state of nature, whereas to be forever afterwards straight is not. This yes. is different from a claim of bisexuality. Is it a presumption that the seesaw of sexuality is not even evenly balanced, but in fact inclines towards gay? And that whereas yes. a previous era might have tilted the seesaw towards straight, this one has decided to tilt it in the other direction, perhaps in order yes. to right a wrong in the hope that the seesaw will one day arrive at an even point. But how are people to work out when the seesaw has arrived at the right position is impossible to tell, because like everything else, we're making all this up as we go along. Yes. And I think I think that's the key point is we don't know the answers to all of these things. And that's most of right. us, life is an experiment for each of us individually. And we find that we're experimenting and off and wrong. But societally. Yeah, we're very confused about that. I mean, I, I do think that the... The whole concept of how to get to equality is just really uh, um, 
Oh, no, sorry, my thing froze briefly. Um, I had an old friend of mine, one of my best friends, who was from Ireland, died some years ago now, and he was a great plain speaker, among other things. And uh, he once said to me, you know what, Douglas? He said, you know, the real definition of equality is when you don't get anything more than anyone else. You just have to put up with the same crap the rest of us have to put up. <laughs> and I always love that as a, as a definition of actual equality. You just have to put up with the same crap everyone else everyone has. Everyone else says that's and And, you know, and, it, and it's... Or... Well, yeah, I put it more generally because when I was talking to a, a colleague, a friend of mine who I had great respect for, he started talking about how privileged he was because of the things he had. And I, and then I, and and you actually alluded to in the book, well, part of this nonsense about privilege is, yeah, you have privilege here, but there's other areas because you were well off, you were you had less privilege. You didn't you didn't get to All experience right. the things. And he had to finally realize, yeah, you know, there's this notion that so it may, it's not that we that we are all equal in the sense we all have to put up the same crap. What I tend to think of is, it, is a level of equality is, yeah, there's crap I don't have to put up with that you do, but there's, but there's crap that, that, that I have to put up with you don't. We all live in this I, I world full of crap. It's just different crap. And exactly. And, and to some extent, you know, the, 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 I mean, I would say the, the leftists tend to, um, certain social justice activists, campaigners and so on, tend to think that life's uh, meant to be about struggle and fighting and campaigning and forward and always forward. And I say, yes, there is an important place for that in the dialectic of politics and yeah. social, actual social justice and much more. But there's also a place for just finding your peace with the world. You know, and one of the ways you can find your peace with the world is to realize, for instance, that there's, there's always some optimal c condition you dream of. I mean... Uh, you know, you mentioned privilege. Uh, I used to think that people whose parents were very wealthy and well-connected, inevitably privileged as a child. Mm -hmm. That is true sometimes. Of course it is sometimes. I know some children, very and wealthy people. And sometimes absolutely a disaster. Yeah. yeah. If a child is spoiled or is unused to being able to compete in the world, uh, they exactly. lack ambition, or the w one of the most common ones is they live under the shadow of a parent who has achieved a great amount, and in fact, it cripples them. Yeah. So, you know, there are ways to console yourself, you know, about the things you don't have. Yeah, um, well, I like to think it's just that we all suffer for the sins of our parents. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just, just that... As I say, that you have to, we all have to find a way to make peace. Yeah, we have to make peace with it. But it, and it, it's a great equalizer, and, yeah. and 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 it's speaking of equality. And you talk later about the fact that we when and we'll talk about equality. But probably when it comes to women, I think is where you first bring it up. It might be race. We don't even know what equality. You know, when you actually what ask what is equality, it's not very well defined. Just like uh, racism and everything else, and and yet these things are talked about with certainty. And yeah. yet they're not. And 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 wouldn't we all be better off if we just realize that? Hey, let's ask what if if we really understand what that means before we assert certainty about what it implies. Exactly. And, you see, my my one of my conclusions about all of this is that I would say let's try to frame an argument that almost everyone could agree with. You know, instead of like uh, straw manning, let's try to steel manicating. One of the ways I, I, I've come to this is to say, look, I, I think there's almost unanimity in us, most developed societies now that 
people should not be held back from accomplishing anything they can accomplish by dint of a, because of a characteristic of which they have no say. Yeah. So if there is a woman who is eminently qualified for a role, of course she should not be given the role just because she's a woman yeah. or because it's a man or yeah. gay or trans or black or anything. Yeah, else. yeah or anything. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, now, I think you could get pretty much agreement on that across political sides. Very few people actually want to discriminate against people and hold people down. Yeah. Or, yeah because of a characteristic. Yeah. However, they they are. Mm-hmm. there is a major disagreement about how you go about this. And the, the campaigning left, the campaigning right has its own criticisms that can be made of it, including... Um, uh, um, uh, a sort of uh, conceitedness, uh, including a sort of, uh, well, you know, it'll take a lot, uh, some time, but, you know, and you can, there is a critique that says, well, how much time do you want this to take? You know, mm-hmm. uh, the gradualist approach, is it okay if it takes three generations more, for instance? Mm-hmm. There are criticisms you can make of a conservative attitude of this, a sort of gradualist approach, yeah, yeah. broadly answer the question I just put out there. But the the other approach is we've got to force the change faster. And actually, I do think that, that way is lying hell. Um, uh, there have obviously been lots of cases already. There, we've got the Harvard admissions case coming up, yeah, probably yeah. the yeah. Supreme Court will adjudicate. That could find that almost every university in America has been breaking the law. Uh, I expect it will. And that's that's very serious. Having been taught at universities, I'd be amazed if it won't, but we'll see. Absolutely. It's a very interesting case. But 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 on the on the in the case of women, I mean, you know, I'm completely of the view. I mean, I, I would I would hate it if any woman was held back from doing something because that she was competent to do. Yeah. It'd be ludicrous. But but it's it's also ludicrous to say, for instance, all high status jobs must have exactly 50% representation from women. Oh, and by the way, the low status jobs, jobs we won't worry about. Yeah, right. exactly. Or, 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 you know, or, or, I mean, yeah, it's, I was surprised in some ways, maybe because it hadn't become a big issue yet. You, you, I think you bring it up in more in the war in the West is it something that affects me a lot is this nonsense of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is the, the central yes, that part came of up. That, that, that ogre was born as I was finishing. Yeah. As you're finished the book, but that's become the mantra, which is, which yes. is that everything, and it's absolutely a ridiculous notion, which we can apply in certain cases, but yeah, in other cases, no, no. And it's not just in low status jobs. Yeah. We don't want all roofers to be 50% women, but we all, yeah. or, or, or 50% black, but we also don't care if, if, if basketball players are, 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 are we don't require them to be 50% right. white either. And, 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 or and small people. yeah, yeah. And, and so it's um, this notion of, um, is just is 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 ludicrous and and of course we both argue about it you don't talk about in merit is a huge thing which again isn't in this particular book but so much um but the notion you don't want anyone to be held back but it's ridiculous um to require uh people to require for any 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 position that has a skill that that it's anything but the skill that's taken into account in determining well, the position. Yes. And you see, that that's what I get into in the war in the West, which is my biggest worry, really, about all of this, the DEI, DEI, yeah. uh, sort of stuff, is, is the opportunity cost. Yes. And, and, and that's, that's you see, it, it, let's, let's just, just return to this idea of 
what happens if somebody with a competency is held back it's it's it um um, Americans who identify as black make up something like 13% of the population. This yeah. is a significant chunk of the American population. Yeah. You would not want that chunk of the population, that group in the population, to be um, disenfranchised, unable to achieve what they Absolutely. could achieve. Equally, um, in a country where the majority of people are still white, you wouldn't want the white population to be disincentivized and disenfranchised and be told to to keep back either. But it's the latter that is now occurring. It's a latter that's now the norm. I think I think there is something, and we have to think very openly and very frankly about this. There is something deeply disturbing for the future of a society if it says to its majority populations, hang back, hold back, shut up keep quiet, um, go about life as inoffensively as possible and uh, die without any carbon emissions. What area we disagree but anyway, yes. I, I just think it's such a tragedy it, of, to yeah. say that as opposed to something which, which motivates and generates and says, look, whatever it is you're good at, whatever your competency, whoever you are, strive like hell fight like hell and discover like hell and we're all going to be better on the other side yeah that's right we'll be a dead on the other side but the, the 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 insidious aspect of this of course is that it all originated from good intentions right cool. and that's the problem which is oh, those words diversity equity inclusion sounds like something you can't how could you ever argue against any of those terms and 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 so it is clear that that when minor when the minority and as often happens throughout history and and understanding history we as we point as you point out and i certainly feel is is really important and recognizing that it's history and not present is also equally important but um you know there minorities have suffered and then gays have suffered and women have suffered and and women were even when they were in minority and so and and trans and, and people with with ambiguous sexuality in different many ways and 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 and, and, and so it's easy to understand that the the desire to ensure that minority rights are upheld but that that's not equivalent to taking rights away from the majority or anyone else whether you know or, for, or from other minorities whether it's asian americans in the case of you know american education or jews or yeah. or or anyone else I yeah i mean it, but it just if 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 you know if we take a step back in our era and say like um, imagine if, for instance, Silicon Valley Bank was dedicated really only to being a really good bank that yeah. optimized profits for its, you know, yeah. people deposited in it, um, uh, was a safe loan, you know, uh, and so on. Imagine if it had focused on that. I'm not saying it would still be going, but it would have a better chance. You know, Imagine for that argument. I'm not, I'm not sure I buy. It. Yeah, they've been they they were really big on being the number one diversity bank and everything else. So I, I suspect yeah, it was bad but, business I mean, practice as much as as much as a, uh, maybe they didn't have yeah, their eye, eye in the ball. But you know, it's hard and to know. Only having one member of the board who understood uh, finance that was yeah a yeah yeah. Um, uh, uh, but but my point is that if you go through all the various. Things and and I, and I basically think when it, uh, I've agreed with my friend Vivek Ramaswamy that effectively much of what you know what he calls woke capital is just sort of whitewashing. You know, I mean, like 
if you're an energy, we all know, if you're an energy company and you're dealing with fossil fuels for the last 20 years, all of your advertisements are, you know, about just wanting to make the planet greener. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Endless pictures of trees and things, you know. You never see a pumping oil well. And, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> it's it's not just, that's not popular anymore. Yeah. Um, but but it's the same with all these corporations, all these banks and things. They worried after 2008, in my view in particular, rightly they should have been worried, that the, you know, the, the, the crowd was going to come for them. And they spend the next 15 years pumping money into social justice programs and talking about how great they are about gays and yeah. covering their branches in rainbow flags and all this crap. And, uh, you know, um, it, it's sort of, it is a sort of whitewashing. It's it it uh, and also I have a sort of contempt for these people because they were never there when there were actually civil rights to argue for. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's after the fact. It's easy. They came afterwards in order it's to virtue cook. signaling, which it's it's it's, yeah. it's 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 a way to protect yourself of virtue signaling, which I a term I learned actually from I'm embarrassed to say from my friend Ian McEwen when he was talking to me about that experience I had. But oh, uh, really? oh, yeah. oh well, um, it, 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 virtue signaling as a word was invented at the Spectator, by the way. My really? Bartholomew was one who came up for that very necessary. It's, it's term. a brilliant term, and it, it and it's a, it is the it is the popular defense, and it's what drives the cowardice of university presidents, of heads of scientific societies, and government officials. That yeah. you can buy, you can get ahead of the game by by pointing out by going overboard to point out how how sympathetic and how you are and 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 it was in it, it's i view it as the intellectual air of of the i mean this is not new either to me um you know of the of the of the red scare era in the 1950s it was you would protect yourself by pointing out someone else as a communist right mm. and 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 it's and virtue part of virtue suddenly is, is is saying how good you are but unfortunately in the modern world especially in the modern world governed by social media, the other half of virtue signaling is pointing out not just how good you are, but how bad they are. Sure. And, sure. and that's that, yeah, and that's the that's the really really insidious evil part. part of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So come back to hardware versus software. That was the the um uh the success. Um and yet it's also been the bane in certain areas. Um yeah. um because what one Sometimes it's true and sometimes it may not be true. And if we don't know the answer, then requiring it to be hardware when it's, when it's useful for you or software when it's useful for you, yeah. for example, and, and I think you make it quite, the, the, the topic you talk about after gay is women. So it's advantageous for the gay community to show that being gay is hardware. Yes. But it's advantageous for the, for the, for women to say many of, if the, either to say a there's no differences or b if there are it's software rather than hardware and, yeah. and in both cases while there's evidence one way or another we may not be certain of the exact answer either way yes i mean i mean the the, the reason i land on this hardware software thing is simply to say that i think that in the current era where people don't think we have a guiding ethos we do and this is about the most fundamental guiding ethos which is that you don't you don't prejudice against somebody because of something over which they can have no yeah, yeah exactly pay. and that's a very important ethos it's like why don't you i don't know why do we why do we recognize now for instance as we didn't until you know a few decades ago that, that i mean for instance taking 
the piss out of somebody for some sort of some handicap so yeah but basically we um we sort of came to that realization at some point in recent decades that if it's hardware um something you can't do anything about you don't you don't prejudice against people for that one of the unforeseen consequences of that is yes is people wanting things to be hardware that might actually be software I mean, there, there are several chapters I could have added to the madness of crowds, which I, I, I might do in a future book. But I mean, uh, there are obvious ones like addiction issues. Uh, a, a lot of addicts would like the addiction to be hardware because yeah. it, to some extent, absolves them of personal Respons um, personal responsibility. Uh, on the other hand, it's tricky because you know we do know that, for instance, certain hereditary things like alcohol, you know, like oh. alcohol. A propensity towards alcoholism in the family is yeah. definitely a thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's tricky. Another one is mental health, uh, which I did think of biting off in the Madness of Crowds and Rise was a, a book in itself. But yeah. mental health, which is also about the only way that a straight white male can get onto the victim hierarchy thing, is to say, I'm certified bipolar or something. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, my God, that's good. Not only bipolar, but certified. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best. Um, um, <laughs> Where can I get a certificate? Like yeah, this? exactly. You put up in your wall. On the wall, framed. <laughs> yeah. My parents on either side. My holding home with a gown, and um, you know, and 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 all that stuff. You know, is also it's like um, there's a desire for. I mean, I think that all you know, mental illness is something we're becoming increasingly understanding and knowledgeable about, and, I, and that's all for the good. But it wouldn't be for the good if, for instance, anyone who ever had any mental health problems was forever able to turn it into a hardware issue yeah. and therefore sort of make themselves a, a victim throughout their lives. Yeah, know? which is what, yeah, I mean, every, every, yeah, well, which is in some sense, again, I'm jumping all around, but it's in some sense what is becoming the norm, right? Everyone is, everyone now has mental health issues if they hear certain words. Suddenly it used to be yeah, okay yeah. if you were an adult, if you weren't a child, to be able to hear things you didn't want to hear or ignore them or argue against them. But now it's a mental health issue and, and that everyone seems to be allowed to suffer from. And Absolutely. it's ridiculous. You know, but it, again, it's hard, Lawrence, isn't it? I mean, I wouldn't like to be a, a diagnostician in some of these circumstances. I mean, for instance, PTSD, which I have a great yeah. interest in. I have a lot of friends who spend a lot of time in wars and things. Yeah. And um, PTSD is a very, very, you know, important realization that it exists um now people claiming to have it it seems laughable i mean you know, yeah, like yeah. you weren't in the trenches of world war one yeah yeah you were brandeis you know? yeah, yeah yeah exactly whatever you had a professor yeah. ignore you and yeah. <laughs> yeah um and uh but it's possible mm -hmm. that if you're brought up in a very fragile environment in which you think that every one of your moves is constantly documented by your peers on social media and all this sort of thing, and that every action in the world is impossible to understand where it'll go, and you don't know, you know, you've got even less idea of your future and even more idea than we ever had before of what the present looks like, you know, may, maybe some of these kids do have a sort of form of PTSD. Um but so it's yeah it's it's you're right and in fact it's not knowing i think as you say if, if we've decided what the answer it's not just knowing what the answers are but if deciding what the answers can't be as you say if we have decided what the answers cannot be or what answers we could not cope with 
Yeah. Which then seems to be little point beyond a fondness for truth in asking good questions. And that's the, again, we come back to the area which sort of motivates me to talk about this as this intersection of science and art and culture is that, is that if, and that's always been my problem with religion is that it assumes the answers before it asks the questions, at least organized religions. And, 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 um, and that whenever you do that, I, it, it, then, then there's no room for discussion or learning. And, and when, you, when that comes into the secular realm as well, where you know what the answers cannot be because they would not be acceptable to you or yes. what answers we cannot cope with, which, yes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm purposely going to jump ahead to things that I know are later on. This notion that is now becoming in the context, you, you talk about it mostly in the context of trans, but also in the, it comes up in the context of race. We see now this becoming part of the accepted hierarchy of science saying there are certain answer questions you cannot ask because there are certain answers we could not cope with and um and and two examples that come up with which aren't in your book more recently than your book but but uh, are um that i've written about are are examples of um uh, of of a paper written for the national academy of sciences by two psychologists from from the michigan state university which is about um police shootings and race Okay, and they eventually with asked for the paper to be withdrawn after it been appeared. First of all, they were castigated at the university, and the, and the vice president for research at Michigan State, who supported the research, was removed. He's a physicist. He was removed oh. at the, because of complaints that were made by physicists that he was supporting this this stuff. Um, it, but but worse still, they asked for being removed from that because they said they were worried about it being misused and, you know, that the answers they would come up with couldn't be coped with. So therefore they should never appear. Similarly, then the journal nature behavior, and I have big problems with most of nature journals lately, but, but nature, you know, nature was, used to be a very, and it still is in many ways, a reputable science journal. And so is science, all the science has become much more uh, politicized than nature. I think the, the journal science, but, Nitro behavior specifically said we will not publish articles that may be in, construed to be harmful to certain groups, independent of whether the results are right or not. I don't know if you're aware of that, but that is just how that's once. How can that be? It, it it's it's especially disturbing because it shows. First of all, there's absolutely no chance of getting to the truth. Yeah, of exactly zero. I mean, it just it clearly means that like truth is not your your guide. It's something else. It's like what would you call it? Uh, social containment strategy yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. The second thing is, I just glanced down my phone because I, I I made a note of this to myself the other day. This this is sort of my view. It may well be your view as well. I suspect it is. And it's completely counter to all of the ideas of the day. But let me just quote this to you. I think we ought to read only the kinds of books that wound and stab us. If the book we are reading doesn't wake us up with a blow on the head, what are we reading it for? We need the books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from everyone, like a suicide. A book must must be the axe for the frozen sea inside us. 
Oh, who wrote that? That was Franz Kafka in a letter in 1904. Oh, that's brilliant. Isn't that brilliant? A book must be the axe for the frozen sea inside us. Yeah, wow, that's... Ah. Wow, that 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 is, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Actually. I mean, Dan, that is exactly the opposite of the world you're describing. Exactly, and it's the world. I mean, it's what's sad is it started in a world of undergraduates who somehow felt that they should not be exposed to things that they did not want to hear, and you can understand that because they're children. <laughs> okay i mean they, you know, for the most part they're learning how to be adults you hope they're learning how to be adults unfortunately in modern universities they're not um but what's sad is when that that permeates the actual establishment that should be involved in exactly the opposite i used to yeah. say the purpose of science and now i say the purpose of education but they're both the same the perfect purpose of education is to make us uncomfortable purpose of science is to make us uncomfortable because if we're not uncomfortable we're just we're not learning we're not pushing our boundaries and 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 the whole point of being 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 comfortable and not is is an anathema to learning this is the lawrence this is you know this is a failure of the adults to communicate this Uh, and the educational community is when it's when you know that's what scares me and i think we should be scared of it's okay when largely ignorant undergraduates think they should be coddled or they shouldn't or they should be safe and by the way, you know, when I did speak at the Oxford Union uh, online, you know, I've deba- done two debates there, one live and one online. Um, I was, I actually was a debate on the question, we are all religious. And I actually took the positive side. A, a bunch of my atheist colleagues were on the other side. Because I do think, I, I, my, one of my arguments was, if we weren't all naturally religious, we wouldn't need science. Um, uh, but also the fact that we see the people who aren't, religious in the in the canonical sense have become religious we need religion secular religion and 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 we're seeing it but one of my one of this undergraduates was put on you know how they do it at the oxford union they put some undergraduates on your side was talking about the safetyism the fact mm-hmm. as as and pointing out something really interesting which i hadn't thought of before which is true which is this notion that's this of giving students safe spaces has produced a group of under of students who feel far less safe because it was never an issue before, but now by being by being That's right. presented with the possibility of a safe space, you're always wondering if you're unsafe. And yeah. that's a really serious problem. Well, and I'm afraid it's the same thing with mental health to a great extent. If everyone is told that they suffer from it all the time, then you will, you know, increasingly actually question whether your anxiety is a normal, reasonable anxiety or actually a medicalized yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. And it's, uh, but it's sad when these mental health issues become sort of part of the norm. And, and similarly, when, when these things that no one should question about the question of whether you should question and whether you should be able to question and whether, whether, whether scientific truth should not be disseminated because it might appear to someone to be harmful um, is, is, the whole, it's, so, it's so awful because I mean, life is so harmful you know yeah 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 that's it's, that's what makes it harmful. wonderful <laughs> it's, it's, it's just so harmful every every step is a step toward the grave you know i just and, was reading a quote and i can't and I, I told you i'm awful at remembering quotes but but um by by actually helen keller which was saying something like you couldn't experience joy if life wasn't you know that w- was always joyous <laughs> of course of course it's the same thing you know 
with death. I mean, yeah. keep a, re- a reasonable assessment of death in your head. Don't 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 let it preoccupy yourself, but keep a reasonable uh, um, recognition of it in your in your in your head, and you'll live better. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And well, look, I'm going to jump ahead. There's so many, as I say, I'm uh, part of the presumably maturity is being able to pick things in spite of the fact there's everything I want to talk to about. Um, uh, we'll jump ahead to women since I want to hit all the points and then, and then brief, my hope is to spend, you know, hit all the points quickly. Now go to a little bit of the war of West. And then I do want to return to the sublime. I want to return to poetry at the end. Um, you, you, it's, it's interesting that you point out when you talk about women, you talk about, uh, I assume a mutual friend, certainly a friend of mine, I'm assuming his friend here, Steve Pinker, um, who, um, who I have great respect for. Um, and in his book, the blank slate, he said things mm. which nowadays would not be, would, it's amazing he hasn't been. Can- I guess yes. people still try and cancel him, but uh, but uh, but we can't went backwards in his oeuvre. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, he just points out that it's just obvious. He said he seems confident when he he's noted that gender has become a hot button issue, but he's confident that the scientific view would win out. And he talks about you know this different sex, and you point out you know, um, and you, as you say, as Pinker said, things are not looking good for the theory that boys and girls are born identical except for the genitalia, with all other differences from the. Uh, coming from the way um, society treats them. And I think you, um, the next sentence is except that less than two decades later, they are. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I think you call it one of the biggest self delusions, the, the societal self delusion over biological, biological reality is just one in a whole series of such delusions that our societies have decided to engage in. Worse is that we've begun trying to reorder our societies, not in line with facts we know from science, but based on political falsehoods pushed by activists in the social sciences, yeah. which, which, which comes up in the case of race as, as well. We'll talk about the nonsense of, the, of critical yeah. race theory. Basically, I think what we're struggling with in sexual differences, differences between the sexes, and any differences uh, between racial groups is we don't know what we would do with the data. Uh, um, we just... We're so worried that uh, it goes back to something you mentioned earlier. Somebody bad will come along and misuse the data. Um, well, somebody bad will always come along, you know. Yeah, uh, and you know that this reminds me of of something at this topic. It's topic because I, I just wrote about it, and um, it it surprised me and shocked me. And you talk about how Silicon Valley is is you know how 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 google and others have this 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 selection effects of of determining what you're allowed to hear and and such we all know that but it's 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 gone into uh chat ppt which is yeah. i wrote a piece on this um when it came to gender i i i i i, I give a, a dialogue with chat ppt where chat ppt basically says i i won't report to you these studies because they they may be harmful or offensive, <laughs> and 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 that's that's got to be programmed in there, right? I mean, by the way, a lot of uh, one of the things that started to obsess me in recent years, Lawrence, is is the way in which in field after field there is a form of stasis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know this very well from the academy. Uh, people think that there's a sort of um, stasis only in their field, and then they discover it seems to be existing in others. The most likely cause for it, in my view, is that we have already cut off certain fields of inquiry. Yeah. And I mean, 
let's 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 do quick let's quickly do the exercise on one of the great perhaps the greatest flowering of thought that ever existed which is in uh, uh, ancient athens Mm -hmm. um we could uh, this miracle of of thought which has never been equaled in, in, in the history of any of the fields we could ask why it happened um, and some of the answers would be ones which would not be positive if we said we wished to replicate it. For instance, there's no doubt that the great philosophers partly had more time to philosophize because they had slaves. Yeah, yeah. Um, women definitely had a secondary position in, in mm-hmm. the society. And so many of the material discomforts that many of us have to find our own answers to in our lives in the 21st century were being dealt with by the women. And uh, the uh, philosophers and the mathematicians, there are questions about how society was set up in ancient Athens that that you could say because of the, the, the these conditions, among others, existed, and we wouldn't want to replicate that today. Yeah. So you, you might come to a conclusion, but you, you could just look and say, look, this is just what it was. And... Um, and learn everything you can from it. Mm-hmm. Um, my worry in our day is that we have decided we have decided to cut off a set of things, and and as a result, are causing ourselves in field after field to be in some kind of form of stasis. And the most dangerous one is that one of people couldn't cope with this idea, because if if Newton had thought like that. Yeah. You know, if, if everybody else had thought like that. Exactly. There's a great example that I learned with, from a colleague. This is a, from the Royal Society. It's a it's a fascinating example to, to show what would have happened. And it's um, Van Leeuwenhoek, I think is how you say his name. The person who, you know, developed the microscope um, was 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 um, reporting to the Royal Society. And he 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 first discovered sperm. Right. And he wrote to that Royal Society, more or less said, you know, here are my results, but if they're too offensive, you know, don't publish them. And of course they published them. But, yeah. you know, he asked the question, can people cope with, with this? And it's a wonderful example in the history of science that somehow in the, whatever it was, the 16th century, probably, 17th century, probably, um, they, were, <laughs> they were more, the editors of the, the Royal Society were much more advanced than the editors of the Royal Society of Chemistry are now have also said, um, we can't have any offensive words or ideas published in our journals. I mean, because I mean, among much else, you're well known as an atheist. But I mean, this this must trouble you, I'm sure, as it does me. Which is that, it what if what if the, I mean, there might be a possibility in our own age that one of the things that is cutting off some of these these avenues of inquiry is in part a form of atheistic certainty, which fears that if we admit to gaps, the religious are going. To rush in and give us God again. And, well, yeah, um, I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that exists in a certain segment of the population, but I think, um, the, I, I think, especially since the, the, the real definition of atheism is, is you know, is not that you're certain there's no God. It's just that you're not convinced there is, and and by any no, argument no, that's ever been made, and then and and so, so, uh 
again, the confident atheists are the ones who will say, I don't know, but here's a, you know, but there's no evidence and you present me evidence. But I, mean, instance, I mean, I've had this discussion with the evolutionary biologists where you, <laughs> you definitely get to a bit where the atheist evolutionary biologist is very wary about the bits that are um, difficult in case, in case the oh, religious sneak in and say, ha ha, that gap is God, you know, I I, I just mentioned it. Because- well, that's where I did that little meme that I've now seen written on cups, which should I say lack of understanding is not evidence for God. It's just evidence of lack of understanding. So the good yeah. evolutionary biologist should say, yeah, we don't understand it. But, the, but that always amazes me, especially as a scientist, is, is that claim you don't understand this, which and, and by as a consequence implied is you will never understand this. Love. You don't understand love. You'll never understand love. Well, it's true we don't understand. There's a lot we don't understand, but that doesn't mean we'll never understand it. So it's true that there are various aspects of evolution that are puzzles. And to pretend there are no puzzles because you're worried about about saying there are puzzles and you right. think that'll open up the God is, is, is a dangerous alley. You're absolutely right. It's instead of saying, yeah, I mean, but but if history is any guide, the things we don't understand, we can eventually understand. And and I need I and I've had this discussion with my friend Martin Reese of whether he thinks there may be some limits to human understanding. There may be, but to my but what is wonderful is that I haven't seen any yet, <laughs> and 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 that's remarkable that we haven't come yeah. up against any brick walls. We may come up against momentary brick walls. And I my one disagreement with you about stasis being caused by by closing off questions, which I absolutely agree occurs. I think in science, if I were to look at the analogy, the stasis often occurs because we haven't yet come up with the right questions. It's not that they're closed off. It's no one has yet asked the right question. So in a sense, it's being closed off because everyone's, you know, following along on the on a trajectory. But it's not as if we'd say you can't ask those questions. No one's been smart enough to come up and say, hey, this is the good question. And, and that's what usually causes progress in science is someone yeah. coming up with the right question. Yes, I saw your mask or something last summer, and he said something so funny at one point. He said, uh, um, "He said basically, unless it breaks the laws of physics, everything's possible." <laughs> yeah, in fact, actually, someone just asked if they could quote me in a book where I more or less said something even stronger. Unless it's shown to be impossible, it's guaranteed to happen. In the oh, that's it's guaranteed yeah, to happen. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's even stronger. So someone someone's writing a book and they asked if they I don't know why they asked if they could use it because of course they could use it. But but um, <laughs> but, but but it but it, it, that's what's that's what's amazing about living in a complex, large, and old universe is that as no matter how implausible it is, if it's not impossible, it's happened. Yeah, and and that's amazing. And yes. of course, it's even more amazing if there's a multiverse. But we can get into that some other time. But but. Uh, but it is one of the things that I find a never ending source of surprise and awe it, yes. for me as a scientist when I look at the universe is that, yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, we look at planets. I mean, all it's just amazing to see the configurations that we once thought couldn't happen because they were just so remote, but they happen all the time. And, and you know, and it's just a pact of a big universe. I mean, stars explode once every 200 years in our galaxy. Um, but, you know, there's one exploding every second somewhere in the universe, and it's responsible for you and me being here. And 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 even stranger, I'll give you another one that'll, I mean, it's not what I planned to talk about in this thing, but it's something that I gave a lecture on that amazed me when I first learned it. You know, I don't wear any gold, but I, but if you, you may have some gold on you, but it, we just I, learned. I no 
Yeah. Okay. But they, they, <laughs> but it's amazing is it was a big mystery in physics, how you got beyond iron in stars. Um, and one of the places we thought might be is this most, most implausible things with these two massive things called neutron stars, which are stars that have collapsed to the size of London and are so dense that a teaspoonful is a hundred billion tons. And, and two of them could collide. And it was proposed perhaps that in that, in that very exotic situation, you could argue that there'd be a big thing called neutron capture and you'd, you'd produce gold. And when, when the, when these, the new LIGO detector detected the collision of two neutron stars, which happens very rarely in the universe, but all the time, because rare is happening all the time, um, other telescopes immediately were able to look at that thing and look at the two neutron stars and look at the radiative decay and saw the creation of two Earth's mass worth of gold in, in, in that system. So those people are wearing gold, this happens to be silver, but those people are wearing gold. Every atom in that thing came from one of the most implausible events that you could imagine, which the collision sometime. Isn't that amazing? I mean, yeah. isn't that mind blowing? <laughs> anyway, it's not what I was planning to talk about, but but yeah. that's the kind of thing that that is amazing. And we should be open minded to not knowing it until we yeah. do and wait, of course, till there's evidence, because that was a theory about neutron capture in these things. And I just seemed implausible to me because, it, yeah, it was in one place. But, you know, but then the evidence comes out and you're willing to accept it yeah. So, yeah. and so let's go back to self-delusion of women which is maybe a lot less interesting than gold and and neutron mm. stars but but um i i do want to ask you one or two questions there and and then and then and then we'll jump to race and trends and then and then i think we'll go to poetry we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to forget the the war in the west which isn't and well uh, well actually we won't completely because i wanted to talk about one or two issues where you and i disagree about them because i think it's important yeah. um, yeah, yeah. um but one of the things that interests me about talking about feminism in the context of self-delusion, do you know Janice Fiamengo? Do you know who she is? Yeah, yeah, of yeah. And, and it's interesting to me because you talk about the first, second, and third waves of feminism, fourth waves of feminism, and we all agree by the most the fourth wave of feminism, it's just become the equivalent to male hating. But but she's argued that it's that was historically true from all the waves. Yeah, yeah. And it's a fascinating thing. I wonder if you've thought about that issue. Yeah. Uh, I I say that the rhetoric is the most important thing to judge it by. Yeah. Okay. And as I think I say there, if um, if the suffragettes had said, "We do de- we demand the vote, all men are scum," I'm not sure the franchise would have been gained. Yeah. 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 Okay. You know, yeah. It would. It, it's it's a very unappealing way that the fourth wave feminists have found to talk about men. Yeah, all men are trash, as you point out, which is interpreted, trash. oh, well, they don't really mean that, but by, by the I mean, sympathetic people, but that's what they Again, mean. again I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's such a disingenuous way of arguing. You know, if a man said, all women, all women are whores, and then women said, I'm sorry, I go, I don't mean all women are whores, I'm just saying all women are whores. Yeah, you would yeah. Be like, yeah, no, yeah. we're judging you by your words. Yeah, yeah. So the people who say, when I say all men are trash, I'm not saying they're trash. It means something else. Yeah, no. yeah. I've yeah, got time for people trying to work out their own thoughts and what comes out of their own mouths. Yeah. Um, but but yes, that that, that is. Um, I I don't I don't agree that that sort of misandry was always there. I think it always had the potential to lurk. 
for sure. And it did lurk in some hearts, but but not not as a part of a movement. Well, and but one of the things, and I, you know, I, I for lack of time, I'm not going to start reading all of your quotes, which I like to read. I'll, I'll just go through some of the ideas. Is that I mean, one of the issues that you raised with, with in the in your women's section is this notion of same but better, the requirement yeah. to be the same instead of accepting that there are differences, as, yeah. as if saying different that there are differences, there are biological differences, is her- heresy, and and. Uh, and, well, you know, we're so we're so confused about this. I mean, um, actually, in the wake of the collapse of uh, um, SVB and others, I, I was reminded again of something I mentioned: the Man's of Crowds, which is what Christine Lagarde said yeah. at the IMF after the Lehman yeah. Brothers, which she said repeatedly for the next decade: if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, maybe this wouldn't yeah. have happened. And I think this is a very important question to uh, ask, which is, um, in which case you're saying that women are different. Yeah. that women would behave differently. Now, what are the differences that you, you mean? And these may be real or they may be imagined, but the, the real ones would be women are less big on risk. Mm-hmm. Now, there is plenty of data to support that. Yeah. Um, and what's more, that men are more risk tolerant in things like the market. Yeah. So, okay, it, it, let's agree that women are, are less risk-taking than men, does that mean that you should comprise a board of 50% men and 50% women on in the hope that the 50% men will be rampaging ahead to try to do dangerous things and the 50% women will be holding them back and saying, whoa there, Sonny, don't, don't, don't invest it all on that? Maybe, but no one's actually saying that. But also, just- if, you open your, if you say that, then you open yourself, like it's always the case, you open yourself to getting bit in the butt. If it, it, by it, literally and metaphorically, um, because then you say, well, if you really believe that women are less risk taking, maybe, maybe then women are not as good in certain fields because right. they require. And then, and of course, then you'll find that that's a heretical thing to say, right? If you if you really make a claim, you've got to. It's either true or it isn't. Yeah. And you've got to accept the implications of it everywhere. It's not that you, you're you not allowed to, it's once again, you're not allowed to say, yeah, this is true here, but we won't even consider that other case because we couldn't cope with that answer. Right. No, no, it's 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 a very, it's a strange fallacy we've fallen into in our time. Yeah, the equal but better is the way I say it. Yeah, equal. yeah. And it's also, you point out, and, and this is a touchy area, but we'll, we'll, I want to at least touch on it. You know, you talked about, you know, how the world has changed and you talked about, Hollywood and Letterman and Colbert, Colbert and stuff, but and 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 actually a great quote from Jordan Peterson. I have to talk about workplace relations, which we'll get, to, which I want to discuss briefly. But you point out of something which is how much has changed, which is that that famous scene from Indiana Jones, where the young student, you know, who would not fall in love with Indiana Jones as a professor, and and <laughs> you know, has love you on there, and and you point out well, that was a, that was kind of a meme. You know, to believe that 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 um, you know a young woman would want to you know uh, not only be attracted to a, a professor, but would be in a position to want to seduce that. That was yeah. kind of a and and yet now that would be an anathema to argue because it's a question of power. And yes, it, well, and it would yeah. and the and. Of, of all sexual relations through the prism of power is, is disastrous. Yeah, as you point out, that's what that's yeah. how you view power. But but I want to ask you a question in that sense, that that having having 
arguing that or arguing that it's only a question of power is 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 demeaning and isn't it demeaning to women to say that they don't have the capability of having social power when in fact as far as i can tell all evidence is that women actually do have more social intelligence than men more awareness of what's going on in the in around them in their social interactions and to say that they're somehow helpless vessels that can be manipulated by men is 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 demeaning to women Oh, I mean, it's just visibly untrue for all the women in our lives that we know. I mean, it's it's visibly untrue, but it's become the it's become the mantra now that and and for and and the example I wanted to give, which relates to these complexity of workplace relations, which is such a tragedy, is is um, famous geneticist David Sabatini, who who was removed uh, from you know potentially Nobel Prize winning work and his lab because he had a relationship with another woman in another lab who turned mm-hmm. out to be not as senior as he was. And, yes. and, 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 but then what's amazing to me is, you know, you talk about the fact that 10 to 20% of people find their partners in workplace in the workplace. So for, and what amazed me, you a lot higher, but that's still, yeah. But this is, I don't, this is what shocked me is the Whitehead Institute, which removed him inappropriately. I think most people have looked at the story would argue. And by interestingly, the head of the Whitehead Institute, as is the head of the Howard Hughes Foundation, which also removed him, both are women who, by the way, married their former students, okay, or postdocs, interestingly. Interesting. Um, interestingly. But the Whitehead Institute, which I think must have 1,500 people, instituted a policy that you were not allowed to have social relationships with anyone else who works at the Institute. I mean, isn't that complete lunacy? Like, uh, what's her name? Um, the woman who wrote the book, Tiger Mom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From from Yale, who I happen to know. I forget her name now. But, was yeah. it Yale? Oh, she was teaching some class. And, she taught, and, taught in the law school at Yale. She's still yeah, teaching and, law school at Yale. And she, she got into some mad uh, uh, um, assault on her character because she was inviting students for tea at her house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is thought to be inappropriate. This is how you socialize students. But now, you know, but now you'd never do that. And I mean, I've got you know, and, and yeah, and I, it's 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 absolutely I mean, ridiculous that you could have a invite a, a male student for tea, but if you invite a male female student for tea, it, you'd never do. I, no, no colleague. It would be madness, academic madness. suicide to do that now. Yeah, but it's 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 it's. It's a very interesting thing also because it demonstrates that there's, we don't have the understanding we had more than 2,000 years ago about the nature of the dynamics in students. Yeah, but the fact that adult, but the fact probably which you're right, 2,000 years ago, which the Greek poets and writers knew about, which is that human adult relations are complicated and, 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 uh, and so, um, which is why they're so interesting. Yeah, exactly, which is why they're so interesting. And, um, and and so to argue both oppression because of 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 um, lack of power, seeming power, when in fact, as as the Indiana Jones example gives, there's power. There's many different kinds of power. And to argue that a young woman, as you say in your book somewhere, that to be young and attractive and is not is is, is doesn't imply any power is 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 just to be ignorant of reality crazily unaware of reality yeah we're both going to get in trouble for that i certainly will but anyway um um let's go to race and then i want to zip through um 
because I, I certainly want to, I want to, I want to at least point out the claim that it's not, it's obvious now. You begin your discussion of race with the famous, the beautiful speech of Martin Luther King, and um, and uh, and the the famous claim that you know we hoped his children would be judged by uh, by the quality of their character and not the color of their skin. I'm paraphrasing, and you probably remember it exactly because you do those things. But um, uh, um, the uh, um, uh, let's see, um, I, I, yeah, I mean here, yeah. He, one day they will live in a nation where they'll be not judged by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character. And we've moved to a situation where it's exactly the opposite. And and as you point out beautifully somewhere the actual definition of racism is exactly equivalent to what's being proposed um in an effort to fight racism um yes it's, it's um, again we were so close we were so close yeah um, to a sort of reasonable approach to this and it like these other issues it went going off into the distance off the tracks just as it should have drawn into the station um it's very sad i mean uh, i know we, we don't have time to talk about the war in the west but the, the the war in the west i sort of go into some of this in greater depth yeah, it's very yeah. sad to me the way in which america in particular has re-racialized its society in the yeah. name of racism. tragic uh and you, you you just see it everywhere i i just um, done a short tour of campuses in the US and um, I was struck by a number of things. One was the timidity of a lot of students. There's the sheer, um, again, it goes to that thing that maybe they're right, you know, to be timid in this era, but the timidity of them, the the, the, the being told to be holding back. Uh, Most be... of them, you know, these studies that have shown that a majority of them are afraid to speak their mind. Yeah, I mean, and, what, I mean, we're and 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 actually, this is a, probably a place to say it. You t the, the, the you say that in the context of race, that basically the safest places in the world are the places where the where the worst crimes are, are where it's claimed the worst crimes are happening, and there's I mean, no place safer than a modern liberal arts college. It's the old version of Moynihan's law, you know, yeah. about human rights and human rights abuses and he yeah. claims of human rights abuses. Unfortunately, claims of racism happen in the places least likely to be uh, committing racism. And I do joke that, I mean, if you were to try to set up the Fourth Reich, um, then um, uh, a college in Oregon would seem a most unlikely place to try to start it. Um, yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it, but that's become the the um you know the norm is is that students are afraid in what should be the safest place in the world to speak your yeah. mind oh and to try things out and yeah, to, to try i mean that's what universities are for there four years of being completely safe to try yeah. out anything intellectually Absolutely. sexually emotionally everything else yeah and and, I, and it's I, a tragedy that they become the exact opposite yeah, and that's how you learn. You know, I have a very shorthand version of this, but I remember when I was a student, David Irving, the Holocaust denier, was due to come speak at the Oxford Union. 
Uh, I remember rowing with my friends in the bar at my college about it. I was of the opinion that he shouldn't be allowed to speak because yeah. if there was even one Jewish student who was offended, that that means that, you know, and I that was my view at the time, I thought. Yeah. I, I rowed it out with friends and I have a different view now, which is that he should be allowed to speak and be countered by historians who know better, who expose him. Which yeah, I mean, I mean... Which has happened since. So, you know, but but yes... It, it, it's it, it's tragic. I thought that the timidity of the students in American colleges I've come across is, is very worrying. But another thing is just the, the prevalence of race as the discussion underneath every discussion. It's very disturbing. It's not what I think most of us uh, in the true sense who are liberal minded hoped we would be stuck on. Um, and again, I think there's just a profound opportunity cost. Oh, tremendous. You know, Tremendous, and it's 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 so it's what um, I'm older than you a fair amount, I suspect. But and, but it's you know I'm a child of the '60s, and um and it when I I look back and I think when I so I was a teenager in the '60s and I never imagined the world 50 years later. You know I thought these things were a thing of the past. It, who would have ever thought? The, not, not just the, the 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 show of of of, of neo puritanism, but the the focus on things that we thought at that time were completely irrelevant. Well, it's imagine, so um, I, I mean, you know, uh, imagine if we'd been speaking in 1999, Lawrence, yeah, millennium, and we've been talking about this new thing, the internet and computers, and we can get access to in 20 years, we'll have access to almost any book, yeah. almost. Any formula you'll be able to go online and have classes from yale for free yeah. on on things uh, we would think my god what is not possible in the 21st century fast forward 2023 nobody's willing to say what a woman is and america's <laughs> disagreeing about the date of its founding yeah yeah okay like, yeah. we've become yeah. stupider yeah we've absolutely stupider. and and uh and and the other aspect is that while the internet is a fountain of all knowledge in some ways it's also the fountain of misinformation and and the problem and that's why i've argued actually we have to change the teaching of educate uh, the way we educate it used to be facts were re relevant but that's irrelevant in teaching now what we need to teach kids is how to sift the misinformation oh. from the information that's the skill of the 21st century that's, that's and important. and another thing which i wrote about recently in a column which is, you know, the era of access to information is, is, is incredible. It's something our forebears dreamed of, but uh, uh, you also have to have wisdom. Yeah. And wisdom comes from thinking about facts. Thinking about facts and being exposed to things that make you uncomfortable because you can't gain the wisdom if you're in this, in this echo chamber of comfort your whole life. Wisdom comes from... from from being challenged in many different ways and often tragically challenged, I think. Uh, and I know, yeah, and that's, I've experienced that in my own life in many ways. That I will say when you talked about, it's interesting to me when you talked about one Jewish student being offended, um, in an article I just wrote that just appeared, uh, which call, which is titled, and I, I don't know if I sent it to you, I meant to, um, because it's amazing for someone, I was a writer, like me or you, there are articles entitled Words Don't Matter. And um, 
And and I'd like to send it to you because I know I love seeing your eyes go like that because of course we, words matter to us. But my point is that words don't matter because you can ignore them. I mean, words only matter if they have an impact. And of course, words don't matter is a mantra right now that's used for censoring. For if words matter because they can offend. And the point is, they, if, they, they, if they offend, it's your choice. It's not, it's not the word. The words yeah. aren't the are not are not. Yeah. They're both weapons and attackers. I'll, I'll send you the piece. But the uh, interesting but thing was. My attitude towards this partly, I think, comes from the fact that I came from a Jewish family where, where the response to what might have been offense or, sub, or minor or subjugation or whatever the word you might want to think was always, the, the response was always to do it better. I saw, you know, Jews not being allowed in place X. What would they do? They'd build a better place. Why? Better place. And, 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 and that was a totally different response than saying, Oh my God! I'm you know I, I can't do anything and you know and and of course there's a you know there's a lot of reasons and some of them are material ones for that but the, but you choose that attitude and I think my response to the fact that the response to being offended is to feel sorry for the is to, is to is to speak out and argue but also to often if someone says some ridiculous name and call, nowadays where there's more anti-Semitism, even though I'm an atheist, people still nowadays start talking about my fact that I'm a Jew sometimes never used to happen. But my response is partly yeah. to therefore say they're not worth listening to and also feel sorry for them because they're ignorant, but not to feel like I'm somehow victimized by, by, by that. And, and so you choose when it, when it's verbal, I mean, it may be, there's many factors and some of them are psychological, but it's a, but it's you, it's, it's you that's your psychological choice. If you're hit with a rock, you don't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> but well, if you're hit with a word, you in some sense have a choice. That's why I, in the war in the West, I used Nietzsche very carefully. As I yeah. always say, if you use Nietzsche, you need to use him carefully. Um, but <laughs> uh, the genealogy of morals has this terrific insight that I, I borrow, which is... Uh, um, his insight on on the person of resentment you know and i say that the only answer to resentment is gratitude but um and it's the passage in the war in the west i'm proudest of is a chapter on gratitude but i lead up to it by talking about nietzsche's view of the person of resentment and the person of resentment uh, needs to have somebody stand over their life and and nietzsche isn't quite sure who it would be but describes it as a secular priest mm. um who stands over the life of the person seeped in resentment and says, there is a person responsible for your failings. Uh, there is a person who has ruined your life. The person is yourself. Yeah. Um, now, of course, you know, nobody wants to be told that it's about the most <laughs> unpleasant thing you could ever be told. And nobody would want to be the person to tell somebody that. Yeah. But to give the positive spin on that, you know, there's that beautiful interview that Morgan Freeman gave a few years ago in which he said, I don't know why his, his, his interviews are so terrific because he has such a sort of wonderful <laughs> wisdom as well as a voice. And I think there's an interview he gave some years ago where the interviewer, uh, who was also black, said, you know, well, you know, it's all it's all very well for you to say that sort of thing. But, you know, some people can't get out of the place they're in and all this. And Morgan Freeman just says, he says, that bus leaves every day. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful thing to say. And at, least, at the very least, even if it wasn't true, it's a much better thing to to hope is true than that there are no buses. Yeah, absolutely. But it is. But, you know, and of course, some people are limited in how many, when, you know, if they're on the wrong route and the bus is on the other street. But 
but so as I, you know, I point out, you know, when the example I gave the Jews, well, they could afford to, you know, people I knew could afford to build a better place, and some people don't have those material things, but, but they nevertheless could, you know, uh, the, the other example was, uh, you know, of real. Uh, it's true that women weren't allowed in universities, but there was a quote on Jews in in science in, in the United States, and Richard Feynman nearly didn't get into Princeton. Only and only got in. I wrote a book about Feynman. Only got in because when the chairman of the physics department at Princeton wrote his, the chairman at MIT said, "How Jewish is he?" And the chairman at said, "Oh, he's not very Jewish. It's okay, let him in." But what what happened in that field, which 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 had a quota against Jews? What happened? Well, Feynman got in. It was better than the others, and eventually led to, you know, Sheldon Glashow and Stephen Weinberg. What happened is the Jews started becoming dominant because they, you know, they, they could be. And then, so intellectually they chose to say, will, or, or, you know, whatever. And, and so there's lots of potential buses and, um, but we have to recognize that we have to make sure that, I mean, part of what you said early on is we have to make sure as a society that the people, that those bus stops exist, that, that people yeah, aren't held back by virtue of something they have no control over. Absolutely. And at the very least to recognize that, you know, and, and I think, again, Morgan Freeman said this, that, that, but, you know, it's not the case in every country in the world by any means. You know, yeah. if you were born, if you're born in one of the lower castes in India, my God, there are no buses for you yeah. in this. Life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in America, it's not perfect by any means. In the West, it's not perfect, but there's nowhere else where it's better at the moment. Well, that's your war. That that gives us a brief one minute segment of the war in the West. Uh, while I'm not as... While I have more segment about American imperialism than you are, perhaps um, the the statement that 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 the West is criticized is often not put in 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 proportion to the to the countries that aren't criticized for being worse, and and I think that's a really important statement to One make. One of the oddities on the international stage, you know. Yeah, yeah. So again, going back to Moynihan's law, that the countries that have least human rights abuses will claim. The citizenry will claim the most human rights abuses. And yeah, and you and you point out in that book how how that's used against lately yeah. in in diplomacy against the United States by places like China, saying, "Well, look, look what's happened with George Floyd and all that." And you know, yeah, how, yeah. how you we have no human this? rights complaints in China. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's area one area we agree about. Although I I do think that American empire has not as been as forgiving, but but let's. I don't want to talk about empire. I want to talk for two minutes about things we disagree with, and then I want to for poetry. So two things that clearly were wrong, in my opinion, were the invasion of Iraq, which I used to debate with my friend Christopher Hitchens, and, and Brexit. Give me one minute on each. Tell me why I'm stupid. <laughs> You're probably not wrong on Iraq. I've been asked to write a lot about it on the 20th anniversary, and I've actually yeah, sure. existed because I started writing something, and it was so long. I just, anyhow, maybe another yeah. day. Yeah. Um, uh, it is so difficult. It was such a disaster in the end. Uh, you know, many people lost a lot of people, and uh, it was hell for the um, many of the people in the in the country as well as for the troops. Uh, I don't think much was achieved. Some things were achieved. I'm not sorry to have seen the Hussein's go. I'm, no, no, no one's sorry about that. But let me uh, let me frame this even clearer. It's obvious that it was a failure in a certain way. I don't want to interrupt, but I, I just want to get to the heart of this. It, um, uh, that what bothers me more than it was a failure, because you never know unless you try, if, if there's a reason to try. Yeah. What bothers me is at the time, 
is, is, that, is that the rationale was a lie. That everyone knew that there weren't weapons, that there was no evidence of weapons of mass destruction. Right. And that was, and, and to, and to, and to, to, Everybody to risk the lives America. of so many people for a lie is something. Look, everyone apart from the British, American, German, and other intelligence agencies. No, the Atomic Energy Agency was making, I was a physicist, it was quite clear. Everything I read, yeah. everything the, I read suggested there was no evidence. The official, I yeah. mean, uh, there was inquiry into the, I mean, for instance, the Chilcot Commission in the UK yeah. and others. I mean, as I say, the German intelligence agency believed that that that, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, they were obviously against the war as well. Yeah. But um, uh, I mean, as the Chilcot inquiry in Britain found, I mean, there was no. Re it would have been insane for Tony Blair to have knowingly lied about WMD, knowing that it would be discovered after the war there were none. I, I knew some of the main actors in the war, um, uh, including slightly the person who your latest book titles yeah. lifted from. Um, uh, um, yes. And by and, the way, that's why they wouldn't let my, my America, my book is not called the known unknowns because they felt that if I used a quote from Rumsfeld, it, it would be, it would be polarizing yeah. in, in England. They didn't mind. So it's being used that in England. Yeah, it, was anyway. a great, it was a great observation of his, but yeah, it was one of, look, the fact that I was not a fan of his doesn't mean he couldn't say anything in, intelligent. But, he certainly did. But mm -hmm. I mean, the, in, in the end, I think that there was terrible hubris. I think that there was that many of us had the feeling that Afghanistan wasn't enough uh, revenge for 9/11, and that America had the 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 right to take out another enemy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Saddam Hussein was the most intransigent, belligerent enemy of the U.S. And um, we also were. I mean, I spent time there after you know after the uh, initial invasion, and and I one of the reasons I'm way away still from having as settled opinion as I should have is because I saw things then that um, uh, I mean, I can't be completely contrite. Um, I was in northern Iraq when the Kurds celebrated their Nauru's New Year's celebrations one of the first times after the de death of Saddam Hussein and seeing these people all flood out of their houses and dancing yeah. The hills was like something from Narnia. I, it was um, yeah. it was it was one of the most moving sights I've ever seen in my life, yeah. uh, of people actually free for the first time. And um, I can never forget that. Nor can I forget the torture chambers of Saddam Hussein that I saw, and and knowing the stories of the people who are in them. And uh, I, I suppose my own, uh, for what it's worth, feeling in retrospect has simply been and i certainly by syria onwards had this view that you have to be a lot more careful than we've been with ever altering status quos because war is pandora's box and you can't put anything back in and everything everything can happen and i've yeah, seen and generally war leads to suffering and, and i mean well, almost always suffering. Hard, diplomacy well, almost always works better than war it seems to me Yes, except that sometimes the status quo is actually as lethal as uh, as as. Yeah, filter. you just you just don't know. And I, I agree. I, I, I've, but as I say, I have very um, I'm very conflicted still on it. I think it was all disastrously handled and a tragedy, and yet I can't give up everything that my. Yeah, I understand. I I, I understand that 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 conflict, the conflicted point of view. There, on Brexit, I'm less conflicted. Um, Interesting. Um, I still believe it was the right thing to do. I never campaigned or anything like that because I'm not a campaigner. I wrote 
long time beforehand why I thought that Britain was better off outside of the EU. I still think that to be the case, but we've had seven years almost of complete ballsing of it up by consecutive British governments. And I think the electorate will throw out the Conservative Party at the next election in part because they made such a balls up of the post-Brexit period. There were arguments for both sides. There was an argument for the status quo that it was going to muck things up if we left. It was just too much hard work. I didn't believe that. I thought that sovereignty was more important. I still believe that. Uh, I still believe that in the end, as uh, the socialist MP Tony Benn once said, you know, there's a set of questions you need to ask anywhere you go in the world to any leader. Um, you know, who 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 put you here? Who can get you out? And so on. And um, by the way, Tony Blair, Tony Benn rather never said that question when he met Saddam Hussein or most other leaders in despots. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, put that aside for a second. The, the questions were good. And the question of who put you here and who can get rid of you wasn't very clear in my mind. It wasn't satisfactorily clear with the European Union and Britain. I thought that it was um, um, effectively anti-sovereignty that we couldn't chuck out people who were making laws that overrode our laws. And that, that this was something that just needed to be righted. And uh, personally, as I say, I think that was still correct. But um, there is no doubt that all of the things that we could have done, many of the things we could have done in recent years have been horribly wasted, um, uh, uh, partly largely through the, you know, the bad governance of consecutive uh, um, administrations and four prime ministers now. Um, and they haven't taken advantage of the advantages of being out of the common market and the fact that we didn't get any uh, trade deal with the US, uh, which we were trying to get under the Trump yeah. regime, Trump government, and didn't get in time. And now the Democrats won't give it to the U UK anyway, um, is is a blow. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the hope was, and I think it was a justifiable hope, it's happened with Australia and others, but was that, you know, we would leave the EU, remain on good terms with the EU, but also expand out to our older and closer Anglosphere allies. I don't think that was was mad, but there's one there's one apology I am willing to give on Brexit, which is that I am deeply sorry for the way in which many EU citizens viewed the vote. Mm -hmm. um, I wish that, and I actually said to the government in the days after Brexit, uh, you have to tell EU citizens in the UK they are not a bargaining chip. They all have the right to stay. Uh, we want them. And uh, to my great upset, the government uh, listened and then didn't do what I asked. And I regret that because I think it caused unnecessary bad blood and um, led to genuine uh, and passionate misunderstandings of what the British people were actually saying with that vote. Okay, good. I mean, look, I don't, uh, I'm interested in your view. I have d differing views in some areas, and, and uh, I'll just put in two cents in each case uh, in response to what you said. When it comes to Iraq, I sympathize with everything you said. And, I, and you know, I used to have this discussion with Christopher, so it's already softened me a little bit. But, but, um, but, I, 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 but I am friends with someone who, whose politics I know you disagree with, with Noam Chomsky. Um, and, and, uh, and, uh, and, but I think he makes a number of interesting points and of which I, several of which I think are valid. But one is if you're allowed to remove, if you're, if you're just, you're allowed to remove governments you don't like, then it has to go both ways. And why, then you can't object when other governments want to remove you. And, 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 and uh, it's, you know, what gives the United States to write 
to unilaterally decide what governments what what yeah. that's a question I'm, anyway it's not there's not an obvious answer it's a question well, well there is an obvious answer there is an obvious answer which is which, that noam chomsky can never avoid being a relativist on absolutely everything and personally speaking i think that i think that the government in washington or london or indeed even paris is more reliable in this regard than say the government in pyongyang yeah okay mr chomsky well, I, that well that I would yeah that I would agree with, but I think it, the point is you have to. I guess it comes back to what I said before. I think one if one is going to risk millions of lives of people as happened in Iraq, for you have to have a, a better reason than just not liking Saddam Hussein, in my opinion. And 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 in particular, I view it as as also intelligent people cherry picked the information they wanted to be. Uh, it was the example of what's happened. What we've talked about in the book that you talk about if you know the answer before you ask the question you're going to get the answer you want and if by you... the way i mean there's also this huge there was so much i mean partly the information we were fed by some iraqi exile groups and so on yeah, i mean yeah. there, there was definitely a misunderstanding of the situation yeah. as it would be then it's when it comes to breakfast my own my rationale as an outsider are two twofold um uh, one um that I viewed, I like, you know, I like going to London, but I also viewed it as being, a, 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 as far as I could tell, its economy was largely based on the fact that economically it was, a, it was the, it was the entryway to Europe for, for and, and I didn't think it was going to bode well economically for London to not be that. So if I, so from a partisan perspective, if I were there, I would have thought economically, it's not necessarily going to be good news, but also as a scientist, if I looked, it seemed to me that the England got more, from its uh, more coming in from scientific support by being part of the EU than it gave out. And, and therefore I thought it would hurt the scientific community. So those were my two sort of personal perspectives of why I, it seemed to me like Brexit wasn't a good idea. But on the second, I don't know if the, if the data's in yet. On the first, there has been some drain, but nowhere near as much as people thought. Yeah, apparently. It, again, the city of London is still much superior to Frankfurt, where everyone was meant to flee. <laughs> okay now look that was great now let's again end with the sublime and after having left the ridiculous there's two things i want to talk about two poets briefly you you talked about elliot who happens to be one of my favorite poets and there there aren't a lot of poets i like but but tell t.s elliot is one and i've it's i there's few that i quote in my books and i've quoted him in two but you're you're i don't know if you want to do i should put you on the on the spot to to recite the the, the beginning of the four quartet that you like, do you, can you do that? If, if yeah, not, yeah. I, I've been written down, but it's a beautiful. Yeah, no, well, yeah. the opening of four quartets is um, time present and time past are both perhaps contained in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining. A perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation what might have been and what has been points to one end which is always present footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take through the door we never opened into the rose garden and then he goes on my words echo thus in your mind disturbing yeah. the dust as on a bowl of rose leaves but to what purpose i do not know <laughs> there he is I've always been amazed by that last bit. Yeah, that last bit. It's you didn't include it in your in your 
in in your piece but 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 it's uh no i mean that quarter that's really i actually would have quoted in the section on time i have quotes at, and one of the only reasons i did in my new book is it was logistic the last time i quoted elliot i had to spend forever negotiating with the estate of t.s elliot to for rights and so i didn't put that in because i just want to take the time to to, yeah. to... By the way, you might know the answer to this there's a word i've been searching for which i came across years ago and have not since been able to discover which is a, a word that actually describes what Eliot was so obsessed by about this thing of the nature of time of all time being eternally present yeah it's the wave function of the universe i think is i mean the point is in quantum mechanics if you think about it the wave function of the universe is is in space and time and it's and it's it's a it's a way it's it it basically contains all of time it's a wave function it basically says all of time is is present and 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 certainly for a photon it's all present at it for an instant but in quantum mechanics you can think of this of time as an illusion because you happen to separate things into these time slices but in fact you know in a picture of quantum mechanics the whole history of the universe is part of a single wave function and time is it's like saying it, it you know it's like space which it is and it's just um, present, just like all of space is present, all of time is present in one picture I mean, of the wave. It, it's 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 uh, it's something which obsessed Eliot and has always deeply moved me. I mean, even very early, I was in Boston the other day, uh, and uh, I suddenly remembered and I said to my host that, that there's a weird early poem of Eliot's called the Boston Evening Transcript. The Boston <laughs> Evening Transcript is a very dull-sounding newspaper that used to come out obviously every evening in Boston. Mm -hmm. And Eliot's very short poem about it is a beautiful piece of sort of bathos, apart from anything else. At the very end, he says something like, um, he says, and one would one would turn and nod, as one would nod to La Roquefoucauld if the street were time and he at the end of the street. And I said, Cousin Harriet, here is the Boston Evening Transcript. <laughs> Such a, it's a wonderful yeah. <laughs> Boring evening paper, but the idea that one might be in a street in Boston and turn and there is La Roque Foucault in the street. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's something he clearly had in his mind all his life. Well, it's a fascinating concept. I mean, I, I don't, I talk about it in the first section of my new book is about time, which there are many known unknowns about. And I point out that some people, many people, including physicists, think some physicists think time is an illusion in, in that sense. I think it's not an effect. I, I also point out, I don't think it's a very useful idea. It doesn't, saying time is an illusion doesn't mean a lot to someone who's missed the 550 train to a job interview. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it, it, it may in some abstract sense mean that, but operationally time is, is, is of vital importance in the universe. And so, and, 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 and so anyway, it, you, I hope you, I, I sent you the PDF. I hope you read that chapter. But there's a lot we don't know about time. But but yes. but the, but the reason I brought that up, besides I love that, and I plan to actually I've used certainly in places where I don't have to publish it. I I I have this in lectures because I love that part of four quartet. But the part of four quartet that I have quoted, which you don't use, is one that moved me much more than the than the time bit, which is interesting because as a as a as a writer and a liter an English. You pick the part on time, which is in some sense vaguely scientific. I pick the part on words, and I loved his lines: oh, yes. "Words yes. strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, slip, slide, and perish. Decay with imprecision will not stay in place. 
will not stay still. And as a writer, every day I think of that poem because it's, it's, it's the struggle that I have it's every day. It's a magnificent um, passage that as well. I think it's also Burnt Norton, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, also Burnt Nor Norton. It's, yeah. I mean, the it, it's so true. And I mean, I I realize whenever I lecture these days, increasingly how true it is that there are just words you use that have transmogrified in meaning in our own lifetimes, you Absolutely. know, and 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 then you know, you get, you always get somebody who says, you know, I, I was sorry you didn't spend more time explaining what you meant by X. And, you know, <laughs> you, uh, there is no time. <laughs> yeah, there is no time for that. It's, but um, I, 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 by the way, I began my piece on words don't matter with those words, with the quote from him. And another quote in the Burton Norton, which also appears, one, one line, words after speech yes. reach into the silence, which is fascinating because for some people they do, but they only reach into the silence if you let them, I would argue. And, and, yes, and, well, Elliot, Elliot believed that uh, that poetry was a way to communicate with the dead. Mm -hmm. uh, w. Jordan once said that in an interview, which Seamus Heaney uh, turned into a poem eventually in memory of Brodsky. Um, Auden was at once asked about what, what poetry was for and he he gave first of all Dr. Johnson's answer and then said and then said I think off the cuff he said uh, it's also our principal way to break bread with the dead, oh, wow. um, and and Eliot believes that he says he says at the end of Four Quartets that, that that what the dead couldn't tell us whilst living they can tell us being dead. Oh, okay. So uh -huh. he's, I'm learning. That's why I wanted to bring it up. But I happen to love Eliot without being anywhere near as knowledgeable about him uh -huh. as you are. But the last one I want to end with, I, I think it's your, um, it's the one before this, one, one the week ago, is Rainer Maria Rilke, yes. who, who you talk about. And you, and actually, I learned these little bits from, you know, somehow eternity almost seems possible. What a beautiful thing. But, but one, what disappointed me is, and it's relevant, I think, the reason I want to end with it is as I think it's relevant to the discussion we have. And I'm nowhere near having encyclopedic knowledge, uh, Rilke. But the 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 bit that has all that stays with me is is this is the four lines: "Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final." Hmm. And I think for me, that captures the whole point of that's what it's all about with learning and not being offended and 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 bouncing back and. And I, I just, I, I actually just sent that to my, to my stepdaughter upon her graduating from college because I think it's a beautiful, unbelievably beautiful sentiment. And he was an extraordinary person, Rilke. And as I said in that piece, I mean, the, uh, it could frame the great questions and some answers better <laughs> than almost anyone. Yeah. And uh, and such a touching, such a touching figure. Um, trying to ask these great questions at a time when the world had fallen around his ears you know yeah and you and, quote that uh, that great question does does the outer space into which we dissolve taste of us all you that's one of the ones yeah. he quoted yes does the outer space into which we dissolve taste of us at all i once said that to a mathematician friend who turned it round on his mouth and just said that's very good <laughs> 
Now, I want, I want to, I, I love, I, I mean, I do enjoy, I'm learning from you and the poetry because as I say, I'm a Philistine and I keep trying to learn a little mm. more poetry, but I do want to, in the interest of full disclosure, first of all, it, lovely, say that it, I sound more in the, in my knowledge of Rilke more, not more scholarly than I am. Less people think I'm more scholarly. I learned those lines. Do you know where I learned the lines from Rilke? From oh. the end of the movie, Jojo Rabbit. Where, where that appears at that, those that appears at the end of that movie. Well, that's not that's not there's no shame in that. Uh, um, whenever, whenever a mass communication medium like cinema encounters a very small communication medium like poetry is today, um, only good can come from it. Is my view. I think you're right, and only good can come go back to near the end of your book to that face of face to face as you point out from de Cocqueville that made yeah. democracy so good the face to face that we've had here has been just delightful for me and I just appreciate it so much and I hope yeah. I hope you enjoyed it too and, and I, I know if people don't enjoy it then there's something wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's been a great pleasure Lawrence I'm thank so you. pleased to be here. thank you I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.